Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, Old Sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Joined by Andrew Newman, I am your co-host, Dan Newman, and we'd like to thank you for yet again joining us for another fun episode of Hello, Old Sports. And you can check us out on Facebook at Hello, Old Sports podcast. You can email the show at helloldsports at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can always, of course, rate and review us on your podcast listening app of choice and we just we love to hear from our listeners and we you know we do hear from you every once in a while you can also contact us through the sports history network website and you know feedback ideas for different episodes things you'd like to hear we've taken some some uh, suggestions in the past and use those to put episodes together so it's always nice to hear who's out there hear hear from our listeners and all of that good stuff. Uh, Andrew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Dan. Um, it's uh, I've had some rough luck the last few weeks with weather and with football and with weather at football. I've had a couple of army games that I've been to where it has been pouring and in one of those cases, freezing. Um, so I'm looking to journey back to some happier times which, as I will bring up, even though we're going to talk about baseball, football for me is entwined in that in a, in a way that when we get into this topic, I'll uh, I'll I'll make some sense of. So our topic tonight is the 2003 MLB postseason. We're traveling back in time, 20 years to a, a, a time that that we both remember, obviously as fans and as you know as adults, basically, or at least as as late teenagers. So, and this really objectively speaking is one of the most exciting postseasons in MLB history. MLB went to the uh, divisional format in 1969. So that was the first year. 1969 was the first year you had playoffs beyond just the world series. And that continued uh, for about 25 years. And then there was the wild card era of it lasted, I guess, another about, you know, 20 or so. And then you had the second wild card. And then just uh, just very recently, you have this new um, this new all these new teams. You now have got three wild cards in each league and buys and chances are they'll be expanding again. And who would have thought that we would look back on an eight team MLB playoffs as a simpler time? But uh, sure enough, we do. And you, you know, you hear talk about the 1986 postseason with uh, epic series between the Red Sox and the Angels, and between the Mets and the Astros, and then obviously the great 
Met Red Sox World Series of 1986 seven game Met victory. I think that this is probably close to, if not tied with that, as maybe the best MLB postseason of all time. You have the Cubs and Red Sox both losing, both being five outs away from a World Series berth and losing in epic fashion. You have the the Marlins with uh, the oldest World Series winning manager in history coming out of nowhere to beat the mighty Yankees in a World Series. You have Barry Bonds uh, playing in the last postseason series and the last postseason games of his career. So there's really just so many stories here. And as we come upon October, as we come upon the baseball postseason and the 20 year anniversary of this great, great epic postseason we thought it would be something that it would be good to go back and uh, and look back on for for a little while here tonight yeah and if you think about it not it doesn't work out totally for me but the the from 01 to 04 01 03 and 04 were all in their own ways three of the most memorable postseasons of all time um, so maybe that's why 03 maybe doesn't get to do its worth. And I think also that the World Series, while at, when we talk about it, I think it's better than people remember. And although the World Series, while I think as we'll get to, it's better than maybe people remember, it didn't have an epic, thrilling end. It didn't go seven games. I think maybe that hurts it in some people's eye, but. The thing I will say, when we talked about 1986 and we talked about the playoffs and everything, or 86 in sports uh, a few years ago, at the end of talking about the Bill Buckner game, I said, is this the most famous baseball game of all time? And I think we both kind of agreed that it is. There are going to be two games that we talk about here, both of which happened within 48 hours of each other. That I don't want to say they're two and three, but it's very hard to not include them in the top five of at least the TV era. Certainly the top 10. I guess we could, that's a possible episode, although it's hard to quantify most famous, but there are two parts of this that there are two games that we're going to talk about that are the blank game, the so-and-so game. There's two of them in a four day span or in a two day, three day span here. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot to unpack. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is also a, you know, a lot of what we do was either spans eras or was way before I was born or, you know, is includes things that maybe I was too young to remember. It's rare. We do a thing that's exclusively focused on something I remember, like watching live, being old enough to understand it. It's even more rare. This is a time frame that we're going to talk about this three or four weeks in October for me. I was a senior in high school. I was playing high school football. So I, in pretty vivid detail, remember pretty much where I was during each one of these games. So I'm not going to hammer it to people because I know it's not as interesting to them as it is to me, but there's a couple of things I'll mention. But there's, you know, I, I was looking at kind of as we were, as I was looking at the calendar of the games in this playoffs, and I was going, all right, so that Saturday was that, and we played this team that night, and then I got home in the seventh inning and watched it. Now, I would love to say, oh, and 
bookending this was we were on a run to the state championship. And no, we were in the middle of a four-game losing streak in October. So we're not going to discuss a win during my conversation here. But I figured it's at least worth, um, you know, it, it, it's it's some color, which will endear myself to the viewer. So with that, we're not really going to get into anything about your personal experience. We'll just get right into it. Yeah, you know, I don't have a ton of personal experience from this one other than being in Boston and being a college student in Boston during this series and sort of being privy to the to the rivalry. Um, I have a couple of uh, couple of stories that I tell. My biggest recognition is a couple nights, one night in particular, being on the phone. Uh, and it must have been like an off day or something. But, or I don't even remember what it was, but there was no game going on either at that time or maybe it was over. Maybe it was a day game, you know, four o'clock game or something. Walking down the street on the phone and not even realizing that I had thrown a Yankee jacket on. You know, to go outside and getting the middle finger from a couple of people, probably just one. I, I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but at least one person flipping me off and not realizing why they were doing it until afterwards. Like, oh, I got a Yankee jacket on. So. This was kind of there were a couple. It's nice of, to know for it's nice to know for once. <laughs> this was the beginning. When we get to that Yankee Red Sox thing, we'll we'll get to it. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what that was for the rivalry. I guess. Um, maybe first things first. Maybe we should just uh, give a quick overview of of kind of who the teams were and where they were coming from. So in the National League, you had uh, the hundred and one win. Atlanta Braves and these were sort of very much still the uh what you would maybe think of as the 90s Braves they Tom Glavin had left he had gone to the Mets as a free agent after this season but you still had a 37 year old Greg Maddox anchoring the staff you had a guy named Russ Ortiz who was a right-handed pitcher who had his best season as a a major league baseball player only ever um only ever time he makes an all-star team leads the national league and wins 21 and 7 and i remember here uh talking to people that season friends of mine thinking that he was a legitimate cy young contender russ ortiz and i mentioned mike uh, uh that tom glavin was gone the closer on this team was actually john smoltz this was during that period where john smoltz had missed a season he'd missed the 2000 season with an injury and then came back as a closer and this was actually uh the the, the middle of i guess really three years he did a little bit of it in 2001 but really Two solid years for three solid years for Smoltz as the Braves closer before he goes back and becomes a starter, which in and of itself is just incredible that a guy went from being a Hall of Fame pitcher to a really, really good closer for three years and then decides he's going to go back and be a starter. And then the offense for the Braves. Chipper Jones is still there. He's actually not playing third base this year. He's uh, moved to left field uh, because they brought in Vinny Castilla. Andrew Jones is still there and Gary Sheffield is the right fielder and Sheffield hits leads the team with a 330 batting average and uh, has 39 home runs. Javi Lopez at 32 years of age has 43 home runs. So that's the Braves. Um their opponent is the wild card winning Florida Marlins who we'll talk nope. about Oh no, you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. No. They can't play the Marlins even though the Marlins are the wild card. Their opponent is the Chicago Cubs who actually, despite being the the NL Central winner, actually have a three-game worse 
um, three game worse uh, uh, winning record than the Marlins do in that year. 88 wins. They're managed by Dusty Baker, who had been the manager of the San Francisco Giants the year before when they lost the World Series in seven games to the Angels. But Baker doesn't get along with that with Giants management. They let him leave at the end of the year. So he goes and signs as the new manager of the Cubs. And they're the NL Central winners with an 88 and 74 record. They match up against the San Francisco Giants, who are fresh off of a loss to the uh, like I said to the Angels in the World Series. They have the, their manager replacing Baker is Moises Alou. This is uh, one of uh, the third of four straight MVP series, MVP seasons, I should say, for Barry Bonds. Jeff Kent had also left the team at the end of the 03 season and uh, gone to Houston. So they don't have Jeff Kent anymore, but they still have uh, a solid team led by the 38 year old Barry Bonds with 45 home runs, 148 walks and a 529 winning percentage. This is about the time when Bonds really starts to starts to walk a lot when teams really stop pitching to Barry Bonds because the team is good. And so they're playing in important games and they're finally deciding that, uh, you know, it's not worth pitching to, to Barry Bonds. So he leads the league in walks uh, with 148 and leads the league in intentional walks with 61. The following year is when it really gets crazy with Bonds with the intentional walks. They walk him, they intentionally walk him 120 times in 2004, which, if that's not a, a single season record, I don't know what is. Well, and then when you, if you add in how many times he was regular walked, too, it's like, yeah. oh, he was walked almost yeah. a game. No, he's intentionally walked three out of every four games, then just pitching around him or regular walks, you know, multiple yeah. times a game. And then the fourth team, just to round it out, is the Florida Marlins, who we'll talk about a little bit more uh, as the show goes on. Their big acquisition that year was the uh, the Hall of Fame catcher, Yvonne Pudge Rodriguez. They have a young Miguel Cabrera as, as a utility player and uh, a pitching staff of young, presumably promising guys Carl Pavano, Josh Beckett, Brad Penny, and Dontrell Willis, all uh, 27 years of age and younger. And they are managed by Jack McKeon, who had taken over for the fired Jeff Torborg uh, about a month and a half into the season and leads the Marlins to a 75 and 49 record. I believe, yep, is named, uh, I believe his name manager of the year, yep, named National League manager of the year and so that is the national league um some really interesting teams and interesting storylines there yeah the braves and maybe unbeknownst to everybody at the time but the braves have kind of settled into their they're still in the perennial playoff phase but they're you know they're not they're not going to get back to a world series there i think they kept losing in the first round up until like oh five and then I think finally the Mets won the division and ended that streak in the 06 season. You got the Giants, who are the defending NL champions. Barry Bonds is certainly one of the biggest lightning rod, most high-profile players in the league. And then you have 
the Marlins who, you know, I think are probably considered a, a throw in, but it's a novelty that they're back. It was six years before that they'd won the world series and basically totally dismantled the team. As we talked about in our 98 episode on all of sports in 1998, not just the Marlins, although that would be an interesting episode. Um, <laughs> and then you have the Cubs and it really can't be overstated enough. And and this was the case really until 2016, but this was certainly the year that, that added to the lore a little bit. Anytime the Cubs, you know, the, the two, the Red Sox got close a bunch of times, including the year we're about to talk about. And their thing was all the years they'd lost, you know, the Bill Buckner game, the 75 World Series, all of that. The Cubs, 84, they made the playoffs and they lost to the Padres, right, in a five-game NLCS that I think maybe they were up two to nothing in it and lost. That um, sounds right. Something I know it was the Padres, um, you know, and they made a couple at what was it 98? They made like the wild card or whatever behind Sosa's 66 home runs, but they were not a team who had been, you know, real close a bunch of times. So anytime the Cubs had any kind of a team, it was a big deal. And that, you know, they had the two young pitchers, Wood and Pryor, and it was the really the closest they would ever come to having two really good years out of both of them when they were both healthy. So that in its own was, you know, that the even if you chop the Marlins off, the top three, there's plenty of firepower up top in, uh, in the NL playoffs and the three division winners. Firepower meaning like attention-wise. Mm-hmm. American League, maybe not quite as chock full of Great postseason stories. Top seed is the Yankees, 101 and 61. Best record in the American League, tied for the best record in Major League Baseball. Still managed by Joe Torre. They'd, you know, they'd won in 96, 98, 99, 2000. They'd lost that epic World Series to Arizona in 2001. They had been, um, they had been a very good team in 2002, but they'd lost to Anaheim in the first round. A lot of the core is still there for the Yankees, Posada, Jeter, Bernie Williams, Andy Pettit, Mariano Rivera. If you want to count, um, if you want to count Mike uh, Roger Clemens as part of the core, you can. This is really probably the most fun Yankee pitching staff in a long time because Clemens is still there. Pettit's still there. They've got Mike Mussina you know, in his third year with the team, plus the year before they've got, they brought David Wells back after three years, I guess it would have been, yeah, three years away from the team. So the starting rotation that year is Mussina, Wells, Clemens, and Pettit, which is, is pretty cool. Rivera's still the closer pitching, you know, pitching as well as ever. 40 saves with a 1.66 ERA, but then they'd started to bring in some of these newer guys. They had signed Hideki Matsui out of Japan uh, in the beginning of the O2 season. They had brought in Jason Giambi as a free agent from the Oakland A's. And he's, he has a really solid season for them in 2002 with 41 home runs, 107 RBIs, both of which are our tops on the team. So, 
they're not the same sort of gritty, gutty Yankees of the O'Neill, Tino, Brocious era, but they're also not the just full of mercenary, big name talent team that they would become in the next several years. Yeah, and you had some new blood in there, Giambi, Matsui specifically, Soriano, who had really, I know he was on the team in 01, but he's really kind of taken over the the mantle as what a lot of people considered, oh, he's going to be the next great player. He had 38 home runs in this season. The fifth starter you forgot to mention was Jeff Weaver, who's going to come up a few times later on in this. They had traded for him in 02. Um, so quite a big drop off between the fourth starter and the fifth starter there. So they're the number one seed. The number two seed is the Moneyball Athletics. The year before is the year that book and the movie is written about the O2 team, but it's still very much that same mold. It's Mulder, Hudson, and Zito. It's Miguel Tejada, and they, you know, continue pulling up their roster here just to get everything. But they, you know, once again, they win the American League West. At this point, they've, you know, oh one, they they had that wild card series against the Yankees where they blew the 2-0 lead. Oh two, they lost to the twins in the divisional round. So they're starting to get the reputation as a team that, you know, is is really well put together and is doing more with less, but has a hard time come postseason. And that's really not a thing they ever shook, if we're being honest. Yeah, I don't think they ever won a postseason series, did they, in that era? I'm pretty sure they didn't. Maybe not in that era, no. But so just for the rest, they had Mulder went 16, or excuse me, Hudson went 16 and 7 with a 2.7. Zito went 14 and 12 with a 3.3. Mulder went 15 and 9 with a 3.13. And then for good measure, Ted Lilly, whose ERA was a full runner so higher, he won 12 games as well. So they had four starters who won more than 10 games and three of them who won right around 15. 2002 had been the really good year for Mark Mulder. That was when he was a 23 win pitcher and won the Cy Young Award. But yeah, he's still he's very good. They're all you know, they're all good, solid pitchers. They have a good closer in Keith Folk, who I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. And they've got some of these, you know, high on base, low strikeout guys that you see depicted in Moneyball, Scott Hatterberg and Terrence Long, guys you wouldn't maybe think about as big time contributors to a, you know, a playoff team, a you know, a, a contending team. But that's um, that's the kind of guys they're going with. And in addition, O2 had really been their good year. And I think that's probably why the book was written about them. They had had in O2, not just the Cy Young winner and Barry, uh, Barry Zito. They also had the the MVP and the shortstop Miguel Tejada who had hit 308 the year before with 131 RBIs playing in every single game Tejada for, for everything else he is, he is also just a horse. He plays starting in 99 here. And this, this crosses over into some of his time in Baltimore. Here's his games played 159, 160, and then 162, 162, 162, 162, 162, 162. He does not miss a game six seasons in a row. And then he almost only misses two total in the three seasons before that. So that's the A's. The Their opponent in the first round is the Red Sox. 
This is the first Red Sox playoff team since 99 when they had gotten beaten by the Yankees. And they had gone through some some changes in the organization. And I remember this being, um, you know, being in Boston. The biggest thing was, is that in late 2001, they had sold the team to a group led by John Henry. Oh. I'm sorry. Did you say Satan? Satan. <laughs> John Henry, who had actually been a a minority owner in the Yankees in the early to mid nineties, and then had actually owned the Florida Marlins for a few years. And he had sold the Marlins to Jeffrey Loria who had owned the Expos and the Expos ended up being nobody wanted the Expos. So they end up going under the um, under the auspices of being owned by Major League Baseball. And then, you know, they end up being sold to the learners and moving to D.C. and all that type of thing. So new ownership for the Red Sox starting in the 2002 season. So real quick, as you mentioned, Jeffrey Loria, I've probably told this story on previous episodes, but um, just to show how much of an idiot I am, um, for years, I thought that was the same guy who owned the Eagles, Jeffrey Lori. So anytime people would bring up the owner of the Eagles, I would say something to the effect of like, yeah, great, you know, yeah, great job he did with the Marlins down there. And nobody ever corrected me on it, but I was, I was really showing my rear end on that. Um, yeah, this Red Sox team and, and, as we'll talk about later, I spent some time watching a, a game of theirs from this era, and you forget almost how burned. I'll just spoiler alert. I think these two years, the 03 and 04 seasons, are the height of the Yankees Red Sox rivalry going all the way back. I think it's the pinnacle that the Yankees Red Sox rivalry achieved. And as I'm looking at this roster of the 03 Red Sox, and as I was watching part of this game last night, Every guy I, who came up, I was like, oh, this effing guy. I can't stand this guy. <laughs> like, and that's how I re- that's how I realized it's like for every time, you know, Jason and I'm not even talking about Manny and Ortiz. I mean, that goes without saying, but like Trot Nixon comes up and I'm like, oh, this guy, Jason Varitek. Like looking at this roster here and I see the name Doug Mirabelli. Doug Mirabelli shouldn't make me mad, but it does. So like that just kind of shows you how like the 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 fever pitch of that rivalry at the time. But but the larger point is this is the team. You know how we talk about the boy and I'm not equating the two, but you know how we talk about the boys of summer Dodgers and we're like the 41 team. There's a couple of guys, but it's not really that team yet. Mm-hmm. But by 47, it's like or in 47, but by like 49, it's that team rather. Yeah. That's kind of how this is like by 03. It's like, no, this is the fully formed Red Sox team of that era. And of course, with, I guess, bi- with I guess one big exception, but the, that exception the being, being Schilling. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's part of the story is that after they lose in 03, they bring in Schilling for the 04 season. The big acquisition in the 03 season offseason was obviously David Ortiz, who had been, he'd come up in the Seattle organization, but then it spent uh, parts of six seasons with the Minnesota Twins had not been a particularly good player, had never been more than um, more than a, a 
uh, sort of a 20 home runs, uh, 272 the year before. In fact, it's it's a famous story now among Red Sox fans. But when they signed him in 2003, he was expected to sort of compete for the left-handed DH job with Jeremy Giambi, which in <laughs> retrospect, for a guy who's now a Hall of Famer, that's crazy. And, and guys, he's not young either. He's 27 years of age. I think one of my first memories of Ortiz, and I, because I was aware of Ortiz, but I kind of, you, know, you didn't think of him necessarily in 03 as being like this superstar of the Red Sox. That came in 04. But in 03, he was just a good player. I don't even, I, don't, I doubt he was an all star in 03. No, he was not an all star in 03. And I just remember watching a playoff, a Yankee Red Sox playoff game with a friend of mine. And for whatever reason, this guy, he was not a Yankee fan. He didn't like Ortiz, and Ortiz hit a single. And, uh, the guy I was watching the game with goes, "It'll take a triple to score him. He's so slow." So he was not a uh, he was not a big Ortiz fan. So that's the Red Sox. We talked about the the A's. We talked about the Yankees. The only other team there is the is the Minnesota Twins. Probably of all the teams, maybe in both leagues, kind of the least going on there, and probably the one who has the least um is the least competitive in the playoffs. They are in the midst of three straight AL Central championships, uh, 2002, 2003, 2004, all 90-plus win seasons. Their manager is Ron Gardenhire, who had taken over in 2002 for the uh, for Tom Kelly. Tom Kelly, who had been their manager going all the way back to the 80s and their, their World Series teams. But, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how much there is to say really about these twins team they actually made it to the alcs the year before in and, yeah, and, and played the a's. A, they beat the a's in 03 in 02 and then they um the angels had upset the yankees so it was an angels twins alcs uh pitching is you know unspectacular brad radke is the ace they have a a 38-year-old Kenny Rogers, who God, I mean, God, Kenny Rogers, who still sticks around for, you know, that that'd be a good episode just to talk Pitch about in the 06 World Series. Pitching the OC, I got accused of throwing doctored balls. You, you, there's, there's just so many. Kenny Rogers is one of those guys from being a teammate of Nolan Ryan in the '90s to then being the starting pitcher in the '96 World Series Game Four that the Yankees won in epic fashion. No thanks to him. Then he goes to the Mets and he gives up a walk to, uh, with the bases loaded in the 99 NLCS <laughs> to to win the game for the Braves. And then he goes to the Twins and then I mean, there's probably I'm missing something. in between. I think he's on Oakland somewhere in there, too, probably. And then he then he goes to Detroit, like you said. So I, I always think that sometimes that would be a good episode is to just kind of look at one of these journeyman guys and talk about all the various storylines they were a part of. So that's the Twins. Tory Hunter is in the midst of winning is, is you know, 10 gold gloves or whatever it is in a row. Um, they have young guys, you know, some of the guys who'd be part of the team later, uh, Justin Morneau, Michael Kadire, those type of guys who Michael Kadire, I believe sucks. My favorite story. I went and saw them play. I was in college in Philadelphia in 2007 and I was working at school and we had 4th of July off and 4th of July was just a Wednesday that year. So you always get screwed when it's just a Wednesday because you don't get to connect it to a holiday or a weekend rather. And I was like, you know what? I don't have anything to do that day. Nobody's around. I'll drive up, go to the Yankee game. So I drove up and went to the Yankee game. This would have been 
one of my last times at the old stadium, come to think of it, because it was 07. I definitely wasn't the last because I went to at least one game the next year, but it was one of the last times I was at the old stadium and a guy sitting behind me all game and the Yankees aren't playing that well against the twins. And he, he's not yelling. I hadn't heard him talk all game. And then one time Michael Kadire comes up and he just goes, Michael Kadire sucks. And that's the only thing he said all game. <laughs> so that that's, that's that story. Um, the Yankees lost that day, by the way. Um, and I drove back and went to work the next day. Well, so, thank you for listening. Oh, is that not the end? Okay. So I thought this so, was all just a build up to that. <laughs> so, so those are the teams. Um, I guess uh, we just sort of maybe want to just go through uh, these series, kind of, kind of one by one. Unless you had, uh, unless you had anything at the uh, at the outset. Now, what do you want to do? You want to do the NLDS, then the ALDS, then the NLCS, then the ALCS. Let's do the American League. Let's do the ALDS first. ALDS first. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about, just to recap, we're talking about the Yankees against the Twins and the A's against the Red Sox. And I guess to be fair, we really ought to start with the Yankees and the Twins just because that's the least compelling of the games. And we should get that out of the way, should we not? I think we should. Yankees lose 3-1 in... uh... In the first game, at Musina uh, gets the start. They, uh, they, you know, they they they're they're down the whole game. They never lead. Um, Latroy Hawkins is the winning pitcher for the Twins, and it is, and he but he is not the starting pitcher. He gets the win because Johan Santana is the starter. Can only go he only goes four innings. Yankees don't get much in that game, but then they they recover really well. They win game two by a four to one score behind a very solid pitching performance from Andy Pettit. The following game, game three in Minnesota, it's Roger Clemens's turn. He pitches well, gets a three to one victory over Minnesota. And then another for a third straight game, the twins manage only one run eight, one victory for the Yankees in that game behind an excellent pitching performance from David Wells, the Yankees are getting good pitching. They're getting a good offense, not a, not amazing offense, but they're getting good offense from Derek Jeter, who hits 429 in the series. Jeter, who had had kind of an interesting year. First of all, he got hurt on opening day against Toronto when he slid. I believe he slid back into third base and his shoulder hit the Braves third baseman in the leg That's and right. he he hurt his she injured his shoulder badly and missed a couple of months at the very beginning of the opening at, at, of the season like I said it was opening day he got hurt then in he, Toronto in Toronto exactly then he was named captain of the team midway through the year they didn't let Joe Torre know beforehand that they were going to name Jeter the captain they just named him the captain I guess with some of those guys being gone, O'Neill and Tino and some of those guys, they felt like it was the right time. Although Bernie Williams at this point has been around for over a decade. And then um, this was also during that time period where Steinbrenner had publicly criticized Jeter for, for his nightlife, for being out and socializing too much and sort of, sort of in the typical Steinbrenner way, kind of mused about whether or not that was impacting Jeter's ability to perform on the field. So it had been sort of an up and down year for the, for Jeter. But as the ALDS dawns, he's, um, he's looking good. 
Yep. I'll give my one memory of this series. That's that's anything significant. That game one was a uh, one o'clock game. And that was rare for the Yankees back then. But you had the Red Sox involved and you had the Cubs involved. So the Yankees got kind of even billing with those teams during this playoff run. Um, So they played an early game against the Twins. The first game of the year It was one o'clock. And I was like I said, I was a senior in high school. So I got out at I got out before eighth period. So I actually got out at 1253. So I sat in my car during eighth period and listened to the game. And then we had football practice, but football practice didn't start till three. Between two and three, we had an hour of basically weightlifting we had to go do. So what I did is I took my uh, jock strap, threw it under the driver's seat in my 1988 Ford Taurus, told the coaches I couldn't find my cup and I had to go look for it. And spent an hour looking for that cup with the radio on in the parking lot of my high school, only to come back in, only to listen to the game, only to come back in in time to get dressed for practice and have the coach ask me how the Yankees were doing. So that was because uh, remember, this is 03. There was no I didn't have a cell phone. And if I did, it wouldn't have been able to tell me what the score of the Yankee game was unless I called somebody and asked them. So that was uh, that was my solution for that game. But yeah, they. You know, they after that game one, they really clearly sort of established what would become and and arguably still to this day is a long running dominance of the Yankees over the Twins in the first round of the playoffs. The Twins actually this year just won a playoff game, I believe, for the first time since the year after this with the Yankees. And they had not won a playoff series until until then either. But um yeah, so the Yankees, they get really good starting pitching in games two, three, and four, like you mentioned. It wasn't bad in game one either. They just didn't score in game one. So, you know, of the four of these series, really the least, the one that's the least to get into, but kind of significant for the Yankees that 02 was the first year they made significant changes to their core that won all those championships. And then they got bounced in the first round of the playoffs that year to the Angels. So this was kind of seen as a significant step of like, oh, this sort of new construction can have some success in the postseason. Or so we thought. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly it. Uh, the other uh, the other series is a little more interesting. It, it goes five games. Um, game one, um, the athletics defeat the. Red Sox in 12 innings uh, by a five to four score. And uh, they win it in the 12th inning when the catcher Ramon Hernandez lays down a two out bases loaded bunt single that scores a runner from third base. So I don't know if that's the only time a a game has ever ended or playoff game has ever ended on a bases loaded bunt single by a catcher. But if nothing else, it's, it's probably pretty rare. It's probably the only one that they have moving images of, especially yes. in color, yeah. you could say. Because, I mean, it would not shock me if that happened in 1911 or something like that. But uh, certainly not any time post-World War One. A's win again in game two. Uh, five. These two, games are at, these two games are in Oakland, by these the way. These two games so, are in Oakland, yes. So then they come back to Fenway. They um they get a 
the, another another extra inning game, uh, an 11, um, 11 inning win for the Red Sox over the A's. This is an interesting an interesting little story here. Um, the Red Sox score on three errors in the bottom of the second, but managed to um, managed to still win the game eventually. Um, or Oakland ties it up, and then I don't know what inning this is, but with the game tied, um, Miguel Tejada gets um, obstruction, uh, fielder obstruction gets called by the third baseman Bill Miller. But after the obstruction is called, the there's no time out called by the umpire, which allows the as this must have been in the uh, this must have been in the sixth, sixth the sixth inning because this is when Oakland gets their one run, and this is um but not realizing that the interference call doesn't mean that tie that the game is stopped that play is stopped. Tahada stops running. He gets called. He gets tagged out. The game then goes to extra innings and um, Trot Nixon hits a two two run walk off home run off of uh, Rich Harden of the athletics. Something interesting here. And this is from Wikipedia, but it makes sense. Um, the, the A's had beaten the Red Sox in 10 straight playoff games that it included sweeps in uh, 1988 and 1990 in the ALCS. And then the first two uh, first two games of this series. One thing that's worth noting prior to game three, the first baseman uh, in his first year with the Red Sox, Kevin Millar had said that the team needed to mix things up. They needed some sort of a jolt. So he tries to convince all of his teammates to shave their heads before the game. 15 of them do it. And uh, that's, uh, that's maybe, I don't know, part of what motivates them to, uh, to make it to the, to the next game to rally and win the next win game three. And kind of funny because they, they became known famously for the exact opposite the next year. But, you know, you think about they were down or they were in the 12th inning down two to nothing in the series. So like they almost got swept and they, they not only win that game, they then, I guess if we kind of lends itself to game four, they have to have a comeback. They're down to their last two turns at bat in game four. Uh, down only by one run. Yeah, so game four, they it's a back and forth game, although they are down four to three going into the bottom of the eighth inning. And the closer for Oakland is in the game in the eighth inning, and he gives up a one-out double to Nomar Garcia-Para, and then a two-out single to Manny, and then they both score on a David Ortiz double. Uh, to give the Red Sox the lead in the bottom of the eighth, and then they close it out in the top of the ninth. Interestingly enough, the closer for that Oakland team is Keith Folk, who a year later is on the Red Sox <laughs> and is the pitcher for the, you know, he's on the mound when they sweep the Cardinals in game four of that World Series. So, you know, a guy who kind of helps them keep it going in 03 by giving up three hits in a row to their probably their three best offensive players then turns around the following year and he's on the team and wins a championship with him. And it, you know, that that's Oh four. And we'll never do an episode about that, uh, that uh, postseason. but yeah, Keith folk uh, making an appearance uh, on the other side of things a year earlier. 
So they end up getting the uh, the five to four win, which allows them to force a game five. So they're flying back cross country to Oakland to play uh, to play game five. It's Pedro Martinez against Barry Zito. The A's have an early one to nothing lead. And then in the sixth inning, the Red Sox get home runs from Jason Baratek and Manny Ramirez. Ramirez's was a three run home run, which made it four to one. The A's managed to score a run in the sixth to cut it to four to two. They get it to four to three in the eighth. They have three, they have the bases loaded in the ninth inning, three straight walks to load the bases. But Terrence Long strikes out to end the game. So the Red Sox win. They come back from down two to nothing. Uh, the A's for the second time in three years blow a two to nothing lead in the divisional series. They, oh no, excuse me, opposite. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. The Yankees, yeah, they blew a two nothing lead. No one too. To the Yankees, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is a little better because they what they in a one they won the first two games in the Bronx and lost mm-hmm. games three and four in, in Oakland. But so they they lose the game. Um, I have actually, a, it's weird. Sometimes you can get like the original ESPN articles, like still live on the ESPN website. So I have the ESPN.com like game recap that was posted. And it talks from October 7th of 2003, the drenched in champagne and relief. Several Red Sox players practically floated back onto the field. They passed in delirious cheers from a rowdy band of Boston fans enjoying a celebration they rarely get. And I guess if you think about it at this point, was the 86 ALC or no, 99, they won in the DS. I yeah. was going to say that when was the last time they won a playoff series would have been the 99 DS. But before that would have been the 86 ALCS, wouldn't it have been? Yeah, they who. Yeah, no, they didn't win in 95. They lost to Cleveland, Cleveland in 95. Did. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side, it said the second second graph in this article says, and in the home clubhouse, the Oakland Athletics wondered whether they're mired in the early stages of baseball's next great curse. I don't know if it's a curse. Whatever they thought they were mired in the early stages of was correct. Yeah, this is, they were mired in the early stages of a 20 year uh, epic that would end with them lo- moving to Las Vegas in about 2025. So and then, OK, so they go back for game five. And this is I, I don't know how many times this has happened. I know the Yankees had to do it. On the flip side, maybe in both 2000 and 2001 against Oakland, but it was one of those things where game four ends and then the two teams have to travel all the way across the country to play a game five a day later. No off day, just a cross country flight. And this is um, is there a rain out or something? No, I that was just the way they scheduled it in those days. It was two and three. And if you, if it wasn't you two and three, it was oh, oh, two days and three days, two days and then three days. Yeah, they did not schedule an off day. And I don't know if that was meant to benefit one side or another, or if that was just they wanted to get it done. I don't believe they do that anymore. I'm pretty sure there's a there's a day off in the ALDS if there needs to be between between games four and five, though, you know, a series would have to go five games, which seems to seems to never happen these days. But yeah, that was um. That was common. That 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 happened a few times where there was just no no off day. But they go in. Uh, Pedro gets the start. Pedro gets the win. 
He gives up uh, three runs and seven hits in seven innings of uh, of a pretty solid baseball. The big offensive contribution in this game is a three-run home run by Manny Ramirez in the sixth inning. Red Sox score four runs in the top of the sixth. Those are their only four runs. They put away Oakland. Uh, they're in the ALCS. The only thing that mars it is that Red Sox outfielder and ex-Oakland athletic Johnny Damon uh, suffers a collision with the second baseman, uh, Damian Jackson, in the seventh inning. Both are knocked out after the crash. Jackson manages to walk off while Damon, who was unconscious for three or four minutes, had to be placed in a neck brace, strapped to a stretcher, and wheeled off in an ambulance to an Oakland hospital. He lifts his right hand and waves as he's being lifted into the ambulance. He has a concussion. Later, he says that as he's leaving, and I, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't joke about this, but I guess it's it's kind of funny. As he's leaving, he thought he was on the A's. So he <laughs> he he as he's leaving, he's like, I thought I was leaving. I, I was looking down at the field, and I didn't know which team. I thought I was uh, still on the A's. So I thought those were my teammates. So, um. So yeah, but the Red Sox put it away. Uh, good, you know, a fun five game series. But they're they're headed to the ALCS, and they're going to face the Yankees for the second time in four years. But as we'll talk about, a very different. I don't know that 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 ninety nine one doesn't seem to fit. Like that was a different era, even though it was only four years later, like or four years earlier. It's it's just a different. Sometimes four years is a big difference. And in that case, they were both very different teams. Well, and we'll talk about this a little more in a little bit. But I think one of the issues that nobody thought the Yankees were going to lose. In fact, the only game that the Yankees lose in that whole 99 postseason is when Clemens pitches horribly against Pedro Martinez in game three. And but other than that, the Yankees smack the Red Sox in the other four games that they play. They they had smacked Texas. They smacked the uh, Braves in the World Series that year. So. They were not meeting as equals that year, whereas I think they really very much were in this year. All right, let's switch leagues. We'll go to the two NLDSs, correct? Should we start with Florida and San Francisco? Yeah, let's start with the Marlins and the Giants. Um, Giants who had lost uh, by, you know, they had blown a 5 nothing lead in game six of the 2002 world series. They then went on to lose game seven of the world series. Barry bonds, only ever world series. Dusty Baker leaves at the end of the end of the season. He's, he's uh, replaced by Felipe Alou and, but they're still good. They're still the division winner. Bonds is still MVP. They have a really good uh, pitching ace in Jason, Jason Schmidt. And they're going up against this Marlin team who really had kind of come out of nowhere. What was the Marlins record the year before? It couldn't have been very good. This was not a team that anybody expected to do anything. What, so you're asking what was the 2002 Marlins record? Yeah, I, I don't mean, think I don't think they were very good. No, I mean, they, I'm pretty sure they weren't. So they were 79. They were 79 and 83. They weren't terrible. Better than I would have thought. But, you know, Jeff Torborg in 2003 gets fired midseason or not even midseason. He gets fired in the first, you know, month and a half. McKeon uh, comes in. He kind of maybe he's what they need at the time. And they 
they managed to to win the wild card and then give the Giants a really good series and beat him in four. I think, you know, the nothing is nothing is amazing about this Marlins team. The pitching is, you know, decent, but not great. Pudge Rodriguez has a really, really good uh, season as he tends to always do. But maybe we just want to go through this and then sort of true to form. It doesn't start well for them. The Marlins get shut out by Jason Schmidt in a pitcher's duel in game one, two to nothing. Yeah. Six hits total. Beckett is, is good. He, they, he only lets up, you know, he gets the loss, but the giants only scored two runs on three hits. So obviously he pitched well as well. Um, Coincidentally, by the way, when I searched 2003 giants, the first thing that came up was that awful 2003 New York giants team that went (laughs) four and 12, uh, less said about that, the better we could just talk about this team, this year's giants. If we wanted to talk about horrible giant teams moving rapidly along. Um, so they win game one game two. the giants actually are up four to one, uh, after four innings, the giants are, um, the starting pitching matchup was Brad Penny against Sidney Ponson. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> Yeah, um, six pitching changes for each team, according to Wikipedia here. But the um, the Marlins scored three in the fifth, three in the sixth, one in the seventh, one in the eighth. They end up winning the game fairly comfortably nine to five. So they get the split at um, at what was at the time known as Pac Bell Park, Pacific Bell Park to tie the series, sending it back to Florida. And then it goes poorly for them when they get back to Florida. Um, Pudge uh, leads off the the scoring in the the bottom of the first with a uh, a two run home run. The only scoring that the Marlins will get until ten innings later in the eleventh <laughs> inning. Giants get two runs in the top of the sixth, and I just want to. Just want to pull up the uh, pull up the scoring here. Top of the sixth, the Giants get uh, basically they manufacture a run. They get two singles. Uh, runner advances on a ground out, and then they score on a ground out, and then a single to to left field. And so then they go. Nobody scores in the tenth. And then in the top of the 11th, they get a run. Uh, Edgardo Alfonso uh, drives home uh, Rich Aurelia on a single off of the Marlins closer, uh, Braden Looper. So they do, the Giants go into the bottom of the 11th with a a one-run lead, but they're not able to, to hold it down. And I believe what there is here is a bad error by uh, their outfielder, by Jose Cruz at, at some who was point. a gold glover, who was a gold glover. Yeah, that's in the bottom of the 11th, I believe. Correct. Yeah. So what it says here is in the 11th, uh, where's the exact thing that happens? Um, oh, that was game. I'm at the wrong. OK, so in the 11th said an error by Cruz and a walk, put two men on with nobody out. They bunted over to make it second and third. They intentionally walk Juan Pierre to load the bases with one out so they could get a double play. Although Juan Pierre's fast, it's going to be hard to double off at second base there. They get um, 
Warrell or Luis Castillo grounds out. So they go to the force out at the plate. So that loads the base. So the bases are still loaded with two outs and Pudge Rodriguez hits a single that scores two runs. Juan Pierre, who remember they put on base intentionally is now at second base as the winning run is able to score on Pudge's single and the Marlins win the game despite going nine consecutive innings without scoring a run, which can't happen too much. They win the game four to three and move themselves to within one game of advancing. And you have to remember the Marlins have never lost a playoff series. Yeah. At this point. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And for, for a while longer after this too, but, and I think the thing that needs to be pointed out here is that Pudge Rodriguez is having a really good series. He ends up uh, with a 353 batting average uh, with six RBIs. He drives in the winning runs in in this game. And then in the following game, which we'll talk about in a minute, he he makes the the you know, he tags a runner out at the plate to bring the game to an end. So he is proving to be a worthwhile offseason acquisition for them that, you know, if they don't have him, they're probably not getting to to where they end up being. So they move on to game number four, still in Miami. Dontrell Willis, the the sort of the phenom, 21-year-old, big, tall, starting preaching for the Marlins, goes up against Jerome Williams. We get another back-and-forth game here. Let me pull up the box score just to see if there's anything... um, anything particularly noteworthy. Um, they actually, uh, yeah, the, the bottom of the second or sorry, top of the second uh, Marlins score or Giants score on a sack fly Giants tie it up in the bottom of the second on an error bottom of the third Pudge doubles RBI double and then scores uh, on the next batter when Derek Lee hits a single. So Pudge to put the, put the Marlins up three, one in that inning. He's already gotten a, uh, an RBI and a run scored Marlins uh, pour on two more runs uh, on a single by Miguel Cabrera in the bottom of the fourth to make it five to one, but the giants, uh, they're, they're not dead. Uh, top of the sixth, Rich Aurelia doubles to score um, Ray Durham, Barry Bonds. hits a sack fly. Uh, Edgardo Alfonso doubles in Aurelia. JT Snow hits a single off of Brad Penny to score Edgardo Alfonso. So going into the sixth, and this is the way it stays until the bottom of the eighth, going into the bottom of the eighth, it's still five to five. Marlins get another two runs in the bottom of the eighth. Miguel Cabrera, again, future Hall of Famer, hits a single. Pudge scores on an error, an error by the pitcher, actually, Another a second run comes around to score. So it's seven five going into the bottom of the eighth. Still not done. The Marlins have Ugeth Urbina, all-star relief pitcher in the game. And he gives up uh, a double to Nafi Perez. He gives up a single, an RBI single to JT Snow. So the Giants got a runner on first, nobody out with the Marlins uh, closer Urbina on the ropes. Strikes out Pedro Feliz. Benito Santiago flies out to right field, but then he hits Ray Durham with a pitch 
And then Jeffrey Hammonds comes up for the Giants. He singles to left field. Uh, and Snow is rounding third to score the and let me let me get the let me see if I can get the um uh Jeff Conine who's playing left field throws the ball to Pudge Pudge tags JT Snow at the plate as Snow crashes into him these were during the days when you could still crash in to the catcher Rodriguez falls backwards and shows that he still has the ball Marlins win this is the First time in postseason history where the potential tying run gets thrown out at the plate to end the series. And was it after this game that the uh, the famous rant took place? It is before we get to that, because I do want to spend a couple of minutes on that. Um, this we got to talk for a minute or two just about bonds because bonds. His father had died in the offseason. And then it's and I don't remember this, but looking back, it seems right within a couple of weeks, the Balco story breaks and the whole Bond steroid thing really comes to light. So Bonds, who never will play in another World Series game or another, I'm sorry, never will play in a in a never. Um never will play in another postseason game. His father's passed away. He will never play in another postseason game. And then by late 2003, Jason Giambi uh, goes in front of a grand jury and he admits to um, to having used uh, performance enhancing drugs that he got from from Balco. So all of this really starts to to leak out beginning in you know, basically the off season of the 2003 season. So Barry Bonds goes from a year previous being very much on the cusp of winning a world series to being scandal disgraced and um, never playing another playoff game again in his career. Yeah. And it's hard to believe that that's another thing that it seems like there was a lot more time in between, but Pretty quickly after Barry Bonds retires, the Giants start winning World Series. But those aren't related. It's just, I mean, they're probably not unrelated, but it's not like correlated. But it seems like there was longer in between that than there was. But, you know, it's hard to believe that really this this all seemed like a totally different world than the team just seven years later that that won a World Series and won three more and four, two more in, in five years. It's also worth noting that the Giants make I think they make seven errors in this in this uh in this seven game series or in, in this four game series. They they field the ball horribly. I I don't see where maybe maybe it was on the Wikipedia to pull it up. recap. I, I saw that I'll go to the somewhere. composite box score. Yeah, seven errors. Seven errors in five in four games. And then the other thing we should just mention is is this um this ninety uh, this um before we move on to these epic uh, league championship series um well we still have one more DS to get to as well so we do we do that's a good point um one that maybe won't take a ton of time but uh Mad Dog Russo Mad Dog Russo who is the long time at the time long time co host of 
the Mike and the Mad Dog show on WFAN in New York, which is sort of, you know, considered, you know, by everybody, not just people from New York, sort of the gold standard for sports talk radio in this country, you know, starting in the 90s. They've been on the years on the air now for 15 years. One of the crazy things about Mad Dog that's always been very sort of weird and surprising and strange is that he was able to be a, a popular New York sports radio host for almost 20 years, despite the fact that he didn't root for any of the New York teams. He never really seemed to show any allegiance in one way or the other in the other sports. And in baseball, he hated the Yankees. He sort of tolerated the Mets, but the only reason he really found common cause with the Met fan was because he, they both hated the Yankees. He was a really huge San Francisco giant baseball fan. And the reason for that was, is apparently when he was a kid, he was at a hotel in Philadelphia with his dad on a business trip or something. And the San Francisco Giants were there. Probably this is like early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And he ran around and got autographs from all of the San Francisco Giant players and was this diehard San Francisco Giant fan, despite being a lifelong New Yorker who was doing sports talk in New York City and part of sort of the the recurring theme of the show every year or every couple of years was the San Francisco Giants suffering these heartbreaking losses either in the playoffs or just before and 2002 they lost you know they thought you know like we talked about up 3-2 in the World Series and then in 2003 they lose to this Florida Marlin team and he goes on this just sort of epic rant about um, what it's like to be a San Francisco Giant fan. Yeah, and isn't the big thing he just keeps saying, like, can you beat the Florida Marlins one time or something like that? So I'm not going to impersonate him here, but I'm just going to kind of kind of read through this a little bit. He says, think about this for a second. If you're a Giant fan, just put yourself in my shoes. The Florida Marlins have been in existence for 10 years. They have done nothing. They had one great year in 97, and now they're having this magical run again, and both times at the expense of the Giants. I have been around for 50 years. Not a thing. Twice this team out of nowhere has knocked us off. I'll give you another stat. The Giants have played four postseason games in Joe Robbie Stadium in the last six years, and they've lost every game in the last at bat. Every freaking game in that stupid ballpark, they've lost in the last at bat. Marlin fans are nowhere to be found. And now I can't win a game in that park in front of 65,000 people. And then I got the Yankees walking through the park in Minnesota, pounding the twinks, Mariano pitching great, Clemens and Wells, who I hate, going out there and being great. Now I got to deal with the Yankees winning another championship, probably beating the Red Sox and Cubs along the way. And I'm out in the first round. And then this is where he gets a little uh, kind of off. He goes, every single freaking year, I get myself juiced up for this stupid team. And at 43 years of age with three kids, enough already. I mean, when am I ever going to win a, f- a lousy freaking championship? One time, not 20, one lousy goddamn time. And then Russo, who never curses, goes, oh, bleep that GD. He goes, every single time, come on, would you please? Can you beat the Florida Marlins one time? And then he goes through all the various losses of, uh, you know, all the various losses that they've gone through throughout the years. 93, when they were uh, 
you know, lost to the Braves in the Le- Braves last year in the National League West. And he says, every year I'm sitting here and I'll be there on October 26th and they'll beat Dusty to annoy me, Dusty Baker. I'll be there October 26th and the Yankees will be parading down the Canyon of Heroes. And he goes, I don't care how many books I write, how many kids I have, how many awards I win. I don't care. I'll give it all back. And then he goes on to talk about how he's not getting any younger. And so he, you know, well, he doesn't know what he's saying. He basically says, I will give back my three children if the Giants can win a, a championship, which they do seven years later. But um, and nine and 11. Yeah. And, and then they win again in 12 and they win again in 14. And they basically end up being the the last dynasty, at least to date in in baseball. But, um, yeah, that is the epic Mad Dog rant, which I listened to again a couple of times, uh, a couple of times going into going into this. Um, and uh, all right. Should we should we do the last division series? Because we're going to need some time on the on the final. Well, definitely the CSs, and then you know we gotta do the World Series, so we should probably press ahead here. Yeah, why don't we go ahead? And this this other NLDS, um, it's a five game series. It's kind of a forgotten series, I guess, because of some of the other things that went on previously. Even though it's a five game series, I feel like no game is particularly epic. Um, now, they're all two run games until game five. I mean, yeah, they're, they're good games, but they're not. I don't know. To me, there's nothing really. The, the Cubs do get their first road, road postseason victory in game one. Uh, they beat Ortiz, who had been a Cy Young contender, like I said, 21, 21 wins, a four to two uh, victory for Kerry Wood over Ortiz. Atlanta comes back and wins, wins in game two. Uh, Smoltz gets the gets the win uh, in relief. Yeah, every game is good, but no game is particularly epic. I think what's what's really just most surprising is you got this hundred win Brave team that's a perennial playoff powerhouse losing to a team that was thirteen games worse than them in the regular season. Yeah, the the Cubs had the had the worst record of of the playoff teams in the NL. They actually only beat the. Astros out by one game for the NL Central uh, for the NL Central Division title. Mm-hmm. Game five back in Atlanta, the Braves win. Or excuse me, the, there's the only game that's not a two game a two run game in the whole series. The Cubs are up four to nothing early. Never gets any closer than four to one. They win five to one. It is the first series win for the Cubs in a postseason since the 1908 World Series. So. They they win that series again. We we are admittedly going a little fast over that, but you know, there's like you said, it's not a ton there, and obviously not a ton of personal recollections there for us. Unlike the other three series, that there's at least you know some kind of connection to. One of the uh, one of the things I do want to mention is that one. Uh, first of all, this Cub team, Sammy Sosa is still on the team, and. He's really starting to fade and we've we've done episodes on steroids and we've done episodes on all this stuff on 98 and everything. And so I don't want to get too much into the steroid thing. Sosa's 34. This is his. Well, it's actually not his last all star year. He's actually not an all star. The following year is his his last all star year. He's still a really damn good player. 40 home runs, uh, which is, you know, not as many as bonds, but it's up there for the National League lead. He is not the Sammy Sosa superstar that he once was, but he's still 
He's still there, still trying to get that championship. The other guy I want to mention on offense that they have on this team is Kenny Lofton. And I want to mention him for a very specific reason. This is during that time period where Kenny Lofton is basically playing on a different team every single season. He had been in Cleveland. And then in 97, he gets traded to the Braves for David Justice. And he plays on a 101-win Braves team that loses in the NLCS to the Florida Marlins. Goes back to Cleveland for a few years. 2002, he's in... With he's with the Giants as they lose the World Series in seven games. Then he's on the Cubs for one year in 03 as they lose in this epic NLCS that we'll get to in a little bit. And then in 04, he goes to the Yankees for a year and he's with them when they have the epic loss to the Red Sox in the seven game series in 04. So he's another one of these guys. It's like you could do a podcast just about following Kenny Lofton around. Then he goes to a couple years later, he's in L.A. And then in his last I don't know if it's last season or his last playoff year. But in 2007, he's back on the Indians and it is his last year. He's back on the Indians when they beat the Yankees in that series with Jabba and the Midges and Tories last year. So the guy's on a different sort of really interesting, well-known playoff team basically every year for a decade. (laughs) So let's just. Let's talk just as we go into this here. So you got the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs and the Marlins. And I don't know if it was renewed, whatever, but you started to hear a lot more about the Red Sox curse, whatever you want to call it. And sort of related to that, people would kind of look and go, Oh, well, the Cubs, it's been 10 years longer with the Cubs. So then they would talk about the Cubs. And some of that's probably my Northeast bias showing that it felt like the Red Sox were the main thing that always came up. And then the Cubs were kind of tagged along. You know, and then you'd hear about the Billy Goat and things like that. But you could just sort of tell there's this possibility, probably for the first time, you know, I mean, I don't know when the last time this would have been reasonable would have been, but not in a very, very long time, if ever, that you might have the Red Sox and the Cubs in the World Series. One team with what would be a, what, 80, 95 year championship drought at that point, and another team with an 85 year championship drought playing in the two oldest stadiums in baseball. Somebody's going to break the streak. It's Boston, it's Chicago. You can just sort of feel that. But then on the other side, you got Yankees Red Sox first, and that's obviously going to have a lot of juice to it. It's the first, you know, it's the highest profile meeting they've ever had, because like we said, 99 was a little bit different. So there is a lot here, and frankly, not a lot of it involves people talking about the Marlins. But as we come to realize, that might have been a mistake. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that that you know, Yankees Cubs would have been a pretty crazy marquee matchup too. It wouldn't have been curse versus curse, but still it would have been two of the biggest cities in the country, that whole thing. So it's not as if it's not as if there wouldn't have been something there had they met in the world series too. Absolutely. So I guess we'll start with the ALCS, right? You know, why don't we do the NLCS first? Cause I think there's actually, okay. Outside of game six, I think there's actually there's not necessarily a, a game, game six and seven. There's not really a ton there. There's some, but there's not a ton there. In fact, um, 
let me pull up ESPN has a good uh a good oral history uh that they did on the 10th anniversary of this postseason. So that's 10 years ago now. And um somebody here said Kerry Wood actually says, I don't remember any of the games before game six and seven. He says, I have no idea, remember anything about the um the first four or five games I was sitting on the bench going over the Yankee lineup in game six, getting ready for the world series. So I think we can kind of sort of run through, maybe we can run through the first five games relatively quickly because I I don't know that there's a ton there that's worth really recapping in any insane way. Well, I mean, game one is an 11 inning nine to eight game. Okay. That field. That that's exciting. Oh, yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about that one? So the Cubs get four runs in the first inning. Uh, obviously, it's an electric invite. You know, it's Wrigley Field. It's the NLCS. The Cubs get the four runs in the first inning. They get off of Josh, uh, off of Josh Beckett. Um, Grid, Mark Grudzelanek triples. Moises Alou hits a home run that makes it three nothing. There's another triple in the inning, so they're up four nothing. But then in the third, Florida gets. Homers by Miguel Cabrera, who literally just retired. Juan Encarnacion and Juan Encarnacion. So the Marlins make it five to four. It had been, excuse me, up right. Pudge Rodriguez hit a home run to make it four to three. Then Cabrera, then Encarnacion. So they're up five to four. They end up with a six four lead. The Cubs tie it at six. Then in the ninth, the Marlins get. The Marlins load the bases. Rodriguez hits a single that scores two runs. So there's Yvonne Rodriguez again. So it gives them a two-run lead. But then in the bottom of the ninth, Sammy Sosa, who you mentioned, hits that two-run home run to tie it. So both teams score two runs in the ninth, forces extra innings. And then Mike Lowell hits a leadoff home run in the top of the 11th, which ends up holding up as the... um, Marlins end up winning the game nine to eight in 11 innings. So, you know, that's a pretty classic matchup there. You got to mention. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I guess it's and, and actually this is a better series maybe than I than I realized. Game two is a, a Cub blowout, a 12 to three um, homers mm. from Sosa, Aramis Ramirez. Incidentally, um, both teams. Do you know what you know what uh, both teams have? At shortstop, a Dominican. Yes, but even more specific, <laughs> both teams have a guy named Alex Gonzalez playing shortstop. <laughs> he probably won't come up again, so it was a good time to mention him. I think he'll come up in a couple of minutes. Um, so the other reason I think you and 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 you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one reason you may not remember how good this series was, and I didn't really either. Between just life, you know, when you were a college student and I was, you know, a high school student and playing football every day and watching this Yankees Red Sox series, there really wasn't a lot of time or energy to be that caught up in this NLCS because the ALCS was draining every bit of emotion I remember from, you know, I remember having from me. So that may be. Kind of coincidentally and weirdly, I did watch Game Six live, but we'll we'll cover that in a few minutes. Um, so game, so the series shifts to Miami for Game Three. 
the Cubs win again in 11 innings. The Cubs win this time. So two of the first three games go 11 innings. Cubs win five to four in game three. Kerry Woods starts for the Cubs. The Cubs, uh, it's two to one early. Then nobody scores again until the bottom of the seventh when the Marlins score a uh, two score two on a uh, Luis, Luis Castillo grounds out to tie the game. And then Pudge Rodriguez singles through the right side. Florida goes up three to two. But then the Cubs in the top of the following inning, Randall Simon hits a two run home run. Randall Simon, who had famously been traded, I believe, earlier that year to the Cubs from the Pirates and had hit one of the racing sausages in the head with a bat earlier that year when he was a pirate and they were playing the Brewers. Do you remember that at all? I do, but that actually wasn't what I was going to mention. And I, not to get nothing he did was more famous than that. No, but he is sort of known for something else, which is, and this is not anything he did wrong. He was one of the guys that John Rocker, who was a teammate of his at the time, when John Rocker gave that insane sort of bigoted interview to Sports Illustrated in whatever year that was, 99. He was one of the guys that Rocker disparaged in that, you know, both, I think, physically and ethnically. So he's kind of a guy who's known for a lot of sort of odd or unfortunate baseball moments. Yeah, I mean, the sausage thing was his fault, but certainly anything John Rocker said wasn't. No. Um, but uh, so anyway, they and yes, it was 99. And the reason I know it was 99 was because. I have a tape of Royal Rumble 2000 from January of 2000 and the bad guy wrestlers say something at the events at Madison Square Garden. And one of the bad guy wrestlers talks about his hero, John Rocker and the fans boo, because that would have been about three weeks or three months after mm-hmm. those comments. Yeah. So anyway, it's four to four. Uh, the Marlins tie it at four in the eighth goes to the 11th. Kenny Lofton singles. Doug Glanville hits a triple that scores Lofton. And then the Marlins shut down the Cubs in the bottom of the 11th. So they go up five to four. Hang on. No, that's excuse me. I got that back with the Cubs win five to four. I, 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 the last part of that, I got backwards. So Doug Glanville has the base hit. Mm-hmm. The scores loft in Marlins uh, are shut down in the, in the bottom of the, um, in the bottom of the 11th. So we've had two 11 inning games. Now each team has taken one of them. The Cubs take a, Two to one lead in the series. Game four is a blowout. This is Saturday, October the 11th. Game four is a blowout. The Cubs get four in the first, two in the second, one in the fourth, or two in the third, one in the fourth. So they're up seven to nothing. They end up winning eight to three. The four runs in the first were an Aramis Ramirez grand slam. So they, Dontra Willis had walked three straight guys and then let up a grand slam. So not a great start there. So the Cubs win eight to three. They're now up three games to one, or excuse me, they're up two games to one. No, they're up three games to one. I'm sorry. I screwed that up. They're up three games to one going into game five in Miami on Sunday, October the 12th. It's game five in Miami Marlins against the Cubs. Cubs have a chance to win their first pennant since 1945. And uh, something I remember about this day um, for me, this was an afternoon game because the Yankees and and Red Sox were supposed to play that night and they got rained out. 
I believe that, yeah, because I think they got rained out and that set up three straight days where they played four straight days because they this was supposed to be game four for the Yankees and Red Sox. And then they played Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I remember we had gone over, we'd gone to Andy's house, a friend of mine, a family friend of mine. And I said something along the lines of, yeah, I wonder if Cubs fans are secretly kind of glad they lost today so that they can win it at Wrigley Field. And Andy said something to me along the lines of, if you've been through what Cubs fans have been through, you'd rather have just wrapped it up. So just to put sort of a button on that game, Florida gets up two to nothing in this uh, in the fifth. They score one in the seventh, one in the eighth. The Cubs only managed two hits in the whole game. The Marlins win four to nothing, but they still trail in the series three to two. As the series shifts back to Wrigley Field for Tuesday, October the 14th, 2003, game six of the NLCS. Marlins have a big, big inning in the eighth. They win eight to three. Then the following night in game seven, <laughs> or or should we stop and talk a little bit about this game? We should probably stop and talk a little bit about this game. We also should mention, or I should just mention something else that's interesting is the fact that, and this happens pro- probably every time the Marlins are in the postseason, but they're going back and forth now between Miami and Chicago. Sort of similar to six years ago when they're going back and forth in the World Series between Miami and Cleveland. There, you talk about some different climates for baseball. This in really, every way imaginable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Although according to Mad Dog, the Marlins are really starting to fill up the building. So, uh, so yeah. So, um, the Cubs uh, Cubs take a three nothing lead. They don't do anything too. Uh, too crazy here they score on a on a wild pitch they score on a double by sosa just uh in the the bottom of the seventh they uh they score on a single by mark Kruzelanik, the the infielder and then they go into with the starter still in the game with mark Pryor still in the game they go into the top of the eighth inning and uh here's what happens um first batter uh, so, go ahead i'm sorry i was just gonna say so I watched there's, there's I didn't watch it in preparation. There's, there's a great ESPN documentary. It's not technically a 30 for 30 because originally the 30 for 30s were just the first 30 they did. Mm-hmm. And then they made like five or six that were basically 30 for 30s bef- without the title. And then they reverted them back to like our documentaries are called 30 for 30s. This was one of those five or six. So it doesn't have that official branding, but that's what it is. It's called Catching Hell. It's mostly about this game, but sort of the larger scapegoating aspect of it. What I did do last night, and I took some live notes on this, I went back and watched this half inning. Mm-hmm. Fox broadcast on YouTube, which very coolly also had the commercials in it. So it was like watching a VCR rip of the game. They come back from commercial to a, a Wrigley that's jubilant, they show a picture with old-timey music of the 1908 Cubs, the last team that won a World Series. They're showing fil- they're showing camera shots of old people and kids alike, you know, the kind of anticipatory pictures they're showing. They show the pictures out on Waveland Avenue. Um the one thing they do, Waveland, Chicago, right? 
Yeah. That's not mm-hmm. the, what's the yeah, ball game. The one thing that watching that game last night kind of took me aback is you realize just how different Wrigley looked then than it does now. Like I knew they did expansive renovations, but it's a very different Wrigley. So the I'll let you, the first batter flies out, and that's um, Mike Mordecai. Mike Mordecai flies out. So there's one out. There's a one out single by Juan Pierre. It's actually He's a got, double, but yeah. It's a double. I'm sorry. It's, it's Let me pull up the exact thing here. So it's a it's a double by Juan Pierre. So it's it's one on or it's man on second base with one out. Luis Castillo comes up and he starts fouling the ball off. And that was I'm trying to make sense of my note. On a 2-1 pitch, he fouls the ball generally into that same area. And I actually paused the tape to see, can I see him in this, even though this wasn't the pitch. And I couldn't. It was you know moving too fast and, and all that. But a few pitches later, Castillo lofts one over to foul territory in left field. You know, Wrigley Field doesn't have a ton of foul territory. Moises Alou goes over there. It's it's live. It's tough to tell. There's a million replays, which I'll talk about. Something kind of happens. The ball obviously is not caught. It's into the stands. Alou kind of takes his glove and swings it towards the ground and is looking into the crowd. He's obviously upset. And the at-bat continues. They then show, and I, I counted the number of times on the broadcast between this and the end of the inning, they showed the replay four times and they showed him five times live. And the him, of course, is Steve Bartman, the Cubs fan who reaches over and on watching it last night, two things became clear to me. One is that it was fan interference. The angle they show, he was he was over the wall. And two is that Moises Alou absolutely would have made the catch. So the, the, that is my opinion. Um, I guess let me just do this in, in sort of chronological order, and then we can talk if that's all right. Yeah. So the immediately ensuing pitch, and by the way, the announcers are all throughout this making jokes about, Oh, yeah, that fan's going to need a security escort getting out of here. Or, oh, that fan might not make it out of here alive. He's going to be afraid to leave. And I guess the announcers have sort of subsequently apologized. But, like, the fact that that was true makes that a little less funny. So the immediately following pitch, Pryor throws a wild pitch on a walk. So now it's first and third with one out. The tying run is... At first, the go-ahead run, or excuse me, the tying run is now coming to the plate. There's a single that makes it three to one. Single by Pudge Rodriguez. By Pudge Rodriguez. There is then a, what may not be a double play ball if we're being fair. It's going to at least be one out. So at the very least, they're going to get the second out of the inning and there's going to be men at the corners. 
three to one. Instead, Alex Gonzalez, who's a good fielding shortstop, boots the ball and everybody is safe. The next batter is Derek Lee, who doubles to make it three to three. And Mark Pryor is taken out of the game. And I I heard people talk about this in years since then with the Cubs 2016 and when they made their runs. And they said, when you have a fan base like this, and in some ways, nobody's like this, but. And you're at home and something like this happens, you can feel the mood change. In a lot of ways, the Cubs are still up three to one. They're up three to one in the series. They're up three to one in the game or they're up three to two in the series. Excuse me. They're up three to one in the game. There was not objectively the need for this panic, but even watching it 20 years later on YouTube and not having any particular emotional attachment to the game, you can't, it's palpable. Those shots they showed of fans start to turn to fans who are with their heads in their hands, who are staring out at this, at the field and they keep cutting back to Steve Bartman sitting there with his Cubs hat and his green turtleneck and looking for all the world. And I, I realize this even worse for Steve Bartman. So they cut to the commercial on Fox when they do the pitching change. The first commercial is a Subway commercial starring Jared from Subway, who it occurs to me now looks a lot like Steve Bartman. Yeah. And Obviously, with everything that happened with Jared, it's like makes it even I don't, it's not connected, but I just happened to notice that there was also a commercial for a disc man. <laughs> they come back. Jeff Conine hits a sack fly to make it four to three. There's then a three run double, which makes it seven to three. There's a commercial on the next pitching change for a cell phone, which looks exactly like what you would think it looked like. By the time Juan Pierre singles again, it's eight to three. That's the final score of the game is eight to three. The Cubs win. I don't know how much we want to get into because this isn't really a story about what happened to Steve Bartman after that. That's been done well on that ESPN documentary. It, you can't do that in five minutes, but. One of the most famous and unique games of all time. Lots of baseball games have ended on home runs. I think this and the Bill Buckner game are very similar because they end in a way people don't see baseball games end. And I think it's the Catching Hell documentary that like kind of like weirdly ties the whole thing into Buckner. Because Buckner had been on the Cubs in the 80s and got traded to the Red Sox oh. before the 86 season. It's a little bit it's a little bit of a stretch, but they they do try and kind of almost make like a weird connection there, too. The the, the larger point that, that that catching hell is good. I guess the guy who made it is from Boston. He's, he never had the connection to the Cubs, really. That documentary is great because, A, they tell you a lot of stuff about Steve Bartman. You didn't realize like he wasn't there alone that night. He was there with people that night. And those people kind of, I guess, abandoned him or whatever that night. Also, this is 2003. I made the comment about my own having a cell phone before. People in the park didn't really have cell phones or a lot of them didn't. And I guess some of them had cell phones, but they didn't have videos. And Wrigley at the time didn't have any video replay boards. 
So for a little while, the people in his section were a little bit mad. What started happening is between the people out on the street behind Wrigley and people with cell phones getting calls from their family and friends who were at home saying it was that guy in the green turtleneck. Fox keeps showing him. He got in the way of the ball. And that's when it starts to turn into like a mob atmosphere. So long story short on Bartman, he basically is never seen again. And I give him a lot of credit. He's, you know, he's never made an appearance again. That documentary is very good because it talks about scapegoats. And at least Bill Buckner was a baseball player. This guy was just a regular guy. There's also the whole thing that's sort of gross of like, well, we won the World Series. We forgive him now. Like, forgive him. He was a fan who probably made a mistake. I mean, he reached over. He shouldn't have done what he did. But like, we do this pod, and I'm, I'll ease on the philosophical thing in a minute. But like, we do this podcast. We love sports. We love the history of sports. The guy's life was forever altered because of something that happened while he was sitting at a baseball game. You know what I mean? That's that's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, let me just make a couple of uh, a couple of points. Um, first of all, they gave him a championship ring mm-hmm. when they won in 2016, which is sort of very strange, really in a couple of different ways. First of all, the fact you know that they would do that because like you said, he he's not a player. He's not associated with the team. It was nice that it was sort of an act of forgiveness, but it was also kind of strange that, you know, had they not won a championship, maybe the guy would have still been a pariah. Although I do think, and, and, and like you said, this isn't the topic. I do think that the Cubs tried to reach out to him through the years, even before they, they 2016, have before 2016. And he's, He's only pretty much ever spoken through his lawyer. Um, I guess he still is believed to live in the Chicago area. Um, to their credit, most of the Cubs players, even right after that, were pretty good about it and said, like, we unraveled. It was not his fault. Like, Alex Gonzalez, I think whoever it was said, like, you know, Alex Gonzalez is as shorthanded of a fielder as there is, and he boots that ball. And I think Pryor took, you know, I said, I do that wild pitch and like almost everybody has not even come around has pretty much from the start realized. And I don't think it was just because they decided to be nice to this guy. I think it's because they realized it was the truth has said, that's not why we lost that game. It's certainly not why we lost the series. The notable exception there is Moises Oliver who you could argue by his reaction at the start fueled the whole thing. Yeah, that was what I was then, just about to say is that pretty much. You, yeah, go ahead. Do you think that the way Alou acted and look, he's in the heat of the moment, too. But do you think the way he kind of jumps up and waves his arm and points at the guy kind of kind of caused, you know, caused the domino effect? Impossible to Without say. Question. The other thing I would say is and, and who knows? I mean. If this happens today in the and maybe just just if this happens today, but also if this happens in the era of smartphones and everything, do the broadcasters continue to show the guy over and over and over and over again? And that's the one thing I'll say about this that was weird is they show him a few times in the immediate aftermath. And I'm like, okay, 
and I was taking tallies and they start to show the replay. And to an extent, I get showing the replay and I'm thinking, okay, they're done with it. After the prior pitching change and after it's gotten away from them, they go back to him twice more at the end of the inning. Yeah. And by then they really should have known better. Somebody presumably was out in that crowd that worked for Fox, maybe not right there, but was out there mm-hmm. and maybe could have said, we're, we don't want to get this guy killed. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's that. Let, you, go ahead. Sorry. So the only other, the only other sort of uh, point that I would make there for two things, first of all, and I don't know, maybe you were going to get to this later. There's this story about how a year or so later, uh, some rich Chicago businessman ma- managed to get a hold of the ball and they do this sort of like public exploding of it in uh, somewhere in downtown Chicago or something like that mm-hmm. to sort of exercise the demons of the curse. And then sort of to your point about how there was an article and I haven't seen this article probably in 17 or 18 years. So I wouldn't even be, have begun to know where to look for it, but it was basically sort of tongue in cheek. And it was like, does anybody remember when in the, whatever inning it was, was the eighth inning of, uh, of game five, game six of the 2003 NL, uh, NLCS when Steve Bartman interfered with a ball in play through a wild pitch, let a double play ball go between his legs, gave up, gave up a hit to, uh, uh, gave up a hit to Mike Mordecai, like all this stuff about how basically kind of like you said, there were a lot more screw ups than just that in that inning. And, and we, we got to touch on it quickly too. They blew a lead in the next game. Yeah. And that's to me where the most striking different uh, similarity between them and uh, the 86 Red Sox is, is mm-hmm. that that was a game six. They had a game the next day. And by the way, at home and this game would almost be interesting to see the clips of, because I have a feeling it hangs in the air the whole game. I think they're you're gonna probably right game. about that. Yeah. <laughs> that they're going to blow that game somehow. So they do lose game seven. Um, I got to pull it back up as I uh, vamp a little bit here. Cause I did close it out, but yeah. So game seven is the next day. At do you mind? Wrigley do you mind? Field. Do you mind if I go through the go play by play a little bit here? Go ahead. So in the first inning, Kerry Wood, who's starting for Cleveland gives up a three run home run to a future hall of famer and Miguel Cabrera. Juan Pierre scores and another hall of famer, uh, Pudge Rodriguez scores to make it three to nothing. Bottom of the second, Cubs get a couple of runners on. Damian Miller, uh, who's the, I believe the catcher, Damian Miller, uh, he's the catcher for the Cubs, hits a ground out, fielder's choice to score a run. And yeah, and he is the, I think he is the catcher. And then Kerry Wood hits a two run home run to score Gonzalez and himself to tie the game in the next inning. Moises Alou hits a two-run home run to score Sosa to make it five to three. So going into the fifth inning, the Cubs are up five to three. And just think if they had held on to this lead, part of the story here would have been that the pitcher hit maybe the most important home run of the series to <laughs> tie the game. You know, when he had given up a three-nothing lead, then they fall behind again. Marlins make it um Marlins down five three in the fifth. Wood gives up a few more runs, including on a, a double by Pudge Rodriguez, who's having just another out of this world series. Then they're down seven five. They do. Um, it eventually becomes 
nine five when the other Alex Gonzalez hits a two run uh, double. But they, they still battle back. Uh, they they get a home run from Troy O'Leary, journeyman uh, player who I remember most as a Red Sox. That ends up being it. They don't really threaten much in either the eighth or the ninth. And that's it. And the Marlins, you know, lost in all this Cubs drama is the fact that this Cinderella Marlins team, they've beaten Bonds. They've beaten the Cubs. They've had these amazing comebacks and they're going to the World Series. Yeah. And again, they it's a. I was joking about it. They still have never lost a World Series or never lost a playoff series because they've won all five they've been in. Um, just to circle back to Bartman real quick, because the two names involved in this, it it kind of underscores a how people were kind of being jokey about this when this guy really like his life theoretically could have been in danger, and b just the names involved are great because think you this is the Cubs and the Marlins in two thousand three, so the two governors are about to get involved. Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich suggested that Bartman join the witness protection program. While then Florida governor Jeb Bush offered Bartman asylum. Ironically, Rod Glavojevich would probably one day himself be a candidate for the witness protection program or, or, or requesting asylum in Florida. Um, But even that kind of shows now, look, this is not a, this is not a a podcast about Rod Blagojevich, but even that kind of shows you just how irresponsible it was that even the mayor or the governor, I should say, was kind of like, it kind of sort of suggesting that violence deserved to be done to this guy. Bob Blagojevich looks like a guy who brags that he knows John Lovitz. What was that? Uh, Letter- Letterman, right? Did all those. Rod Blagojevich <laughs> I think the best one is he said, Rob Blagojevich looks like your wife's ex-husband. That's it. That was a good one. So. All right. So we want to move on to this ALCS. Um, Yankees. Uh, Yankees and uh, Red Sox. This is the first time or the second time I should say they've ever met in the postseason. Obviously, they were not able to meet until the wild card era. This is the 78 would be considered a regular season. 78 is a regular season game. Yeah. So both teams come in having, you know, one, you know, Red Sox more dramatically, but both teams come in having won the ALDS, obviously. To me, there's two games here that really bear some significant analysis, Um, and that's game three and game seven, and to a certain degree, game six, but not as much. First two games, it's it's kind of tit for tat. Yankees win a you know a solid victory behind Andy Pettit in game one. Uh, Red Sox win. Um, Basically, Red Sox won. Red I'm Sox sorry. won game one. Red Sox win a solid game one behind the the just very recently deceased Tim Wakefield five to two, and then the Yankees win uh, six to two in game two behind a solid uh, pitching performance from Andy Pettit. I, I don't know if there's any real drama in, in either one of these games that's worth um worth delving too much into. No, I mean, those first two games were at Yankee Stadium. I guess Bears. Mentioning that those were um, though that was those two games. Um, I'm just trying to place my calendar for that. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, so th- those two games midweek, Wednesday, Thursday, Yankee Stadium, they split. Friday's the off day, which brings us to Saturday, October 11th, 2003. Um, 
up at Fenway. I believe mom and dad may have been visiting you or they were away for some, whatever reason they were away. They weren't because I had a friend in town, a friend, uh, my friend, big Tom from high school who I had actually gone to the 2000 ALCS game six, the David justice game with, and he was in town and we had gone. Actually, I do have a story about this game. In addition to my friend being in town, a few of my other friends from college who had graduated were in town visiting. It was Columbus day weekend. If I recall correctly. Oh, that's right. That's why. And a bunch of us went out to dinner in Chinatown in Boston on Friday night. And we're leaving. And one of the reasons we went there, it was like it was like the one restaurant in the city where you could get an alcoholic drink and not be carded. They would just bring you the drinks. And so we're leaving this place. And there's a Deki Matsui standing there. Walking. Oh, I remember this, you say it. walking into this restaurant, um, you know, on the off day going into game three. Next day, we get up, we do the sightseeing thing. My friend and I were going around the Freedom Trail. And my friend, one of my other friends uh, who was actually he was at Harvard at law school now, um, he calls me. He's like, hey, we're going to all watch the game. You and your friend should come over. So I'm at this. Um, and that was the, the game where that other guy made the comment about the, uh, the Ortiz needing a double, a triple to score from first. I'm watching this game with my friends from a couple of friends from college, a couple of his friends from law school, my friend Tom from home. So there's probably, like, you know, nine or ten of us watching this game and it ends up being an epic epic game the yankees um unsurprisingly are st- are uh starting enrique wilson at third base because for whatever reason enrique wilson hit pedro like you wouldn't believe and it's an <laughs> afternoon game it's like a four in the afternoon game and it's yankees red sox it's clemens pedro in an ALCS game three at Fenway park, which was the exact thing that they'd had four years earlier when Clemens had gotten smacked out of the ballpark and the Yankees had lost 13 to one in 1999. So there is a lot of drama going into this one. And we should also say Clemens had basically announced he was retiring at the end of the year, at the end of Oh three. He had gotten, I'm pretty sure in September, when it might have been his last start at Fenway, when obviously they didn't know he was going to go, they were going to play in the playoffs and they didn't know he was going to come back with Houston and then with the Yankees again. I believe he had gotten like a fairly warm reception for the first time since 96 when he left at Fenway. Like they gave him a courtesy. Like it wasn't overwhelming, but it wasn't a hundred percent booze. Like it had been ever since he left the first time for Toronto. That's that ring a bell to you. That is correct. And I also want to give an interesting aside here on that six or seven years ago, I was at a Fenway uh, Red Sox game with, um, with my wife, with Allison and they showed Clemens. He was at the game and this was not a Yankee. I don't think they were playing the Yankees. This was just a random game at Fenway. They showed Clemens on the big screen and the place went nuts, which I, I mean, I guess time heals all wounds. But if you think about it, 
Clemens had not done anything else for the Yankees since, or for the Red Sox rather, since all those days getting booed and he'd become more unpopular generally with all the, the PD stuff. So I was shocked in like 2014 or whenever it was seeing Roger Clemens get a standing ovation at Fenway park on the big screen. So I don't know. He's a, he's a beloved Red Sox once again, I guess in his retirement. <laughs> um, so that brings us to game three. You mentioned Pedro against Clemens. They, the Red Sox get two runs in the bottom of the first. Then Kareem Garcia gets hit in the back by Pedro. And Pedro had a reputation back then of, especially with the Yankees. But hold on. There's more that happens before that. Okay. Yeah. So, so the Red Sox get, the Red Sox get two. And then in the top of the second, the Yankees get a run back on a single by Kareem Garcia to score Jorge Posada. So that makes it two to one. And then mm-hmm. go, going and this to me is where it starts. In the top of the third, Jeter hits a home run off of Pedro. That is a shot that is like over the green monster. It's one of those no question about it hits. And later on, in retrospect, everybody sort of says that it seems like that's where something happened to Martinez, to Pedro, and that something flipped in his head. And Pedro had a reputation as a guy who would throw at you. And even though later on it became sort of more an endearing thing, which I guess it kind of happens with these guys. Um, you know, you talked about... uh you talked about Bob Gibson, um, you know, about how now it's like, oh, he would just throw it, guys. And it's considered endearing. You know, maybe people didn't feel that way <laughs> at the time. It was kind of the same way with Pedro. In fact, there was a game in 2003 earlier in the season in the summer where the first two batters of the game or maybe it was a home game and it was the first two batters at the bottom of the first Soriano and Jeter both got hit by Pedro and had to leave the game. So. This was not like an endearing thing with this guy. This was considered he was a jerk. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was you're right. It was not a thing that was supposed to be like uh you know, he kind of he kind of rehabilitated himself or not even rehabilitated himself but like he became a more universally loved figure later on than he really was especially you know his tenure with the Yank or with the Red Sox, he was the public enemy number one from a Yankees band standpoint. It wasn't Ortiz, it wasn't Manny, it wasn't any of these guys. It was Pedro until Pedro was gone. So here's here's where it, it gets interesting. In the top of the fourth, Posada walks, and um, that brings up Kareem Garcia. No, I'm sorry, that brings up Nick Johnson, who hits a single to left. Posada goes to third. And then Matsui, ground rule double, Posada scores, Nick Johnson to third base. So what does that mean? All of a sudden, first base is open. And the Yankees have probably their worst hitter coming up, this guy Kareem Garcia, who all of a sudden was just sort of on the team in 2003. (laughs) Like... Because earlier in the year, they'd had Mondesi, Raul Mondesi was on the team, and then he was he was gone. And the year before that, they'd had like Rondell White and um, 
who John Vanderwall, and you know, obviously before that there was O'Neill and all these guys, but all of a sudden, Kareem Garcia is playing in the outfield almost every day next to Bernie and Matsui. And all of a so Pedro throws at um throws at Garcia. He hits him sort of in the back, sort of under the helmet behind you know in in sort of like in the shoulder blades area and garcia gets up jawing so now you got the bases loaded with one out soriano hits into a double play short to second to first nick johnson scores and kareem garcia slides really hard into todd walker who's the Red Sox second baseman. And it's funny too, because on the broadcast, you're watching it. You're watching the double play. You're watching, you know, the, the out get made at second and then first, and then they go back to the mound and they show Pedro. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there's this other kerfuffle and it's Garcia jawing at Pedro jawing at Todd Walker. And I remember Tim McCarver who was really, really on the broadcast. He was really anti Pedro during this whole thing talking about basically the reason this is happening is because of the DH, which is that because Pedro doesn't have to get up there and bat for himself, that Garcia is going to take it out on the infield. So mm -hmm. they start jawing. He's jawing at, Posada, Michael Kay, the Yankee broadcaster, longtime Yankee broadcaster, later says about Pedro and Posada, he says they legitimately hated each other. <laughs> so it's four to two. It's Yankees are up. And so then they go into the bottom of the fourth. And on, I think, the first pitch, it was Roger Clemens throws high, high, <laughs> not really inside but high and Manny Ramirez, another hothead basically throws his bat and comes out. Like he wants to fight Roger Clemens <laughs> and Tim, Tim McCarver. And I think McCarver is right. McCarver goes, you talk about a guy who's looking for a reason. I've seen this pitch so many times. I don't think Roger Clemens was who, who look, who's a jerk. Who once and a headhunter and a headhunter and who once who, who you know who we, we know the Piazza stuff once threw at his pregnant wife at their house because she'd gotten a hit off of him while they were just like throwing it. But I really don't think Roger Clemens is throwing at Manny Ramirez here. Well, and there's a precedent of that with New York pitchers. The Duke threw at his own kid in a father son game one time. That's a major um, reference. Yeah, the Yankees are a major league team. So, and, the one thing I will say with this that's kind of cool, I I roll my eyes a little when people go like, oh, back in the day, these teams used to hate each other. And it's like, it's a different time. It's even by 2003, it was a different time. The the people I was saying talk, were talking about, you know, the 60s and the 70s or even, you know, the the Lakers and the, or the Celtics and the Sixers hated each other and the Bulls and the late and the Pistons and the Knicks. Like, I get you're not going to see that these days. And, and certainly in baseball, like, there's not anybody on the Red Sox really right now. I could probably come up with one or two, but like who I hate. These teams did not like each other. They they really did not like each other. Most of the guys did not like most of the other guys. 
there were obviously exceptions. Well, and in fact, I didn't read the end of the quote, but Michael Kay in that quote says basically you need that kind of hatred if you're going to have a good rivalry. So, yeah, it, it helps. I mean, yeah, you don't want it to, to, you know, you don't want it to be like Juan Marichal in the 60s hitting a guy with a bat. But a little bit of that healthy dislike can can be a good thing. It's, you know, sports is supposed to be fun drama. And if they legitimately don't like each other and want to beat each other on the field, then that's okay, I think. So Ramirez starts coming out. Out comes Don Zimmer, who at the time is 72 years old. Pedro would also win. When was it that Pedro pointed at his head at one point, too? So was that's that when the, he was in the dugout. That was the previous inning when the thing happened with Garcia. He's looking at Posada and he's pointing at his head. And McCarver says that that's insightful. I-N-C-I-T-E. He says, that's just insightful. That's not saying use your head. That's saying I'll hit you in the head. I don't know. And he's that- right. You think he's right? That, that of course, that's what he's saying. I and Tim McCarver hates the Yankees. Tim McCarver was a notorious Yankee hater. So, like, this is where I get like the people who who find it in them to, in the course of this argument, say Pedro Martinez pointing at his head was not indicating he was going to throw at somebody's head, and then that he was in some way justified for throwing a seventy-two-year-old man to the ground who wasn't swinging a wrench at him i mean i don't care how fast he was walking like the people who defend pedro martinez in this situation like well what did zimmer think was going to happen yeah he probably shouldn't have gone out there but like the fact that did he need to throw him on the ground like i don't think it's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the sport but like don't defend that the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the sport happened in this year. Next, next year. year. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess I'm not as militantly anti Pedro on this as you are, but the, yeah, I mean, he definitely does. And source plus he's the guy who got the whole thing started. Like I said, I still remember watching that game and thinking something changed in him after the Jeter home run. Oh, I and forgot he- about- Sorry. I, for- I was reading ahead in this book article from Boston uh, from it's 98.5 a Boston radio station, but they yeah. have like a, a retrospective on this game. And there was something happened later in this game that I forgot yeah, about. Yeah, but. no, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, So, um, so yeah, so that all happens. I remember the umpires warn both benches and that pisses Tori and Clemens off because they haven't done anything. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, their bench is getting warned. I also just realized this yesterday. I just found this out yesterday doing my research. As soon as that thing happened with Zimmer, they immediately cut off beer sales at Fenway Park for the rest of the game. Really? Yeah. They said no more beer sales. So Zimmer goes down. Pedro, incidentally, I guess in his his memoir, his autobiography, said that was the one regret he had from his whole career is what happened with Zimmer that day. So he did he did feel feel bad about it. And then it's just this sort of weird, tense game for the rest of the game. Yankees lead 4-2. It makes it to 4-3 when um, when Trot Nixon uh, scores Ortiz on a double play 
in the bottom of the seventh. But it never, other than that, it doesn't really feel too much like the the Yankees are, or the Red Sox are threatening, even though it's a close game. After the Zimmer thing, all the air sort of goes out of the whole ballpark. Um, do you remember calling me screaming that Pedro Martinez should be fined and suspended? Yeah, and that's I was trying to place. That's I was doing this because I it was a Saturday afternoon and I was home and I was trying to figure out what game we had that week, why I was home alone on a Saturday afternoon that time of year. I had played a game the night before. Okay. A Friday night game. Like in our area, it's every game's not on Friday nights, especially back then. Not every stadium or not every high school had lights. Some teams played on Saturdays, whatever. So we had played a, on the road on Friday night. So I was home. I had the whole weekend off for probably the first time all year. I didn't have anything to do that whole weekend. And mom and dad must have been somewhere because I was home alone. And yes, I remember calling you from our landline house phone and using the F word a lot and screaming about Pedro Martinez. So, yes, if, you, if you're asking, I, I do remember calling and uh, and and saying all of those things. Yes. And then there's one more little piece of drama. Do you want to just touch on that real quick before we move on? Yeah, so Jeff Nelson manages the Yankees reliever. Jeff Nelson gets into a fight with a Red Sox grounds crew member because the Red Sox ground crew member who had been he was must have he was near the Red Sox the Yankees bullpen area and he cheered a double play that the Red Sox had, had turned and Nelson was upset and they got into it and said the play was taken to the hospital with cleat marks on his back and arm while Gar- Kareem Garcia left with a cut hand because Kareem Garcia got involved in it. Again, if I'm going to be fair, if I'm saying Pedro Martinez shouldn't have thrown Don Zimmer to the ground, they shouldn't have put their hands on a groundskeeper. They could have told him to shut up. And we don't know what the rules are about. Like, you know, there's very strict rules about who's allowed to cheer and what you're allowed to do. You know, for example, most teams, the bat boy is an employee of the home team. You don't have the bat boy who's sitting in the visiting dugout cheer for the home team yeah. while he's in the visit. You know, there's rules about these things. So if, if he was like the grounds crewman crew person in charge of the red side of the Yankees bullpen, no, he shouldn't be cheering, but you also shouldn't. That's not a license to smack him around. I have to say to Kareem Garcia, it was a really hard guy to root for on the Yankees. Well, yeah, I mean, he was he a was jerk and he a, wasn't very good. So it was just a volatile jerk and he was only on the team for that half a season but i was not a, be i was better than that to, yeah yeah so yankees win game three and this is really where the rivalry becomes white hot this is this is what this is what brings it to that next level for the rest of this year for the following year, and even to a certain extent, kind of for what it will be for the next little while. This is kind mm-hmm. of the the starting off point where it's like, this is it. This is the rivalry. The Yankees. Yeah, because 05, 05 was a great year with them, too. They just both lost in the divisional round. So this is what I was saying. Game four was supposed to be the next day. It gets rained out on Sunday. So now they're going to play four days in a row if they go seven games. They're going to play Sun. They're going to play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And ironically, that also happens the following year. That's right. Yeah. So Red Sox take a one nothing lead. It's Wakefield against Musina again. Um, 
the Yankees tie the game, or no, excuse me, the Yankees get a run in the fifth to tie it. Then the Red Sox score again in the bottom of the fifth to take to regain the two to one lead. They go up three to one. Um, they go up three to one in the bottom of the seventh. Yankees get a run in the top of the ninth on a uh, Ruben Sierra home run to make it three to two. And then the next two guys, David DeLucci, who I haven't thought about in a long time, and Alfonso Soriano both strike out and they. Red Sox tie the series. Yeah. And then the Yankees get it back the following night at game five, also at Fenway. I feel like oh no, this, this is, is an- by the way, this this is the same day as the Bartman game. So yeah. So the Bartman game must have been earlier in the day, right? No, oh, no, that was a night game. This must have been during the day. This says game five was 818. Maybe they were at the same time. I don't know. That Cubs game's at night. I know it's dark. I just don't know maybe if it started at uh if it started at um uh you know started at you know five o'clock or something like that. Let me take a look. That game was also the 14th. That game started at 718 local time. So yeah, they started at the exact same time. Wow. Yeah. Maybe that's why I don't remember that game. Which is funny because I do so maybe the Yankee game ended quickly, which doesn't sound like a 2003 Yankees Red Sox game, but I remember watching that a lot of that Cub Marlin game at the end. But I don't know. Rio, no, same. Not- basically, both were three hours. The only other possibility that I'll throw out there is that maybe Baseball Reference is wrong. That could be. That's the only other thing I would okay. uh, maybe maybe we could consider. Yankees win. So go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say Yankees get three runs in the second. Um, Kareem Garcia, your pal, with a two-run single. Soriano with a single. So they take a three-to-nothing lead early. Uh, Red Sox get a run back in the fourth. Each team scores a run in the eighth. So the Yankees win four-to-two. Wells gets the win. Derek Lowe gets the loss. And the Yankees move to within one game of the pennant. They take two or three up in Boston. And Wells is pitching great. Pin Mm. that for about 20 minutes from now. David Wells has been pitching really, really well. So we go to game six. This one I remember was a late afternoon game because game seven of the Matt Marlins, um, game seven of the Marlins Cubs game was that night. And I remember this game may have started at like three or four or something like this. Four eighteen, because, yeah. Because we had practice and the practice ends at six and our coach, and I was the captain of the team, by the way, the, so like he really didn't want to hear this from me. The coach was like giving a speech at the end of practice while we're sitting there and I'm doing this with my hand, like moving along. And he knew exactly why I was saying that. And he just looks at me and goes, shut up. <laughs> like, cause he could tell I was telling him like, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. So he was, he was not happy with me for that. But um, so the Yankees, the Boston gets, it's a weird game because the Yankees get a run in the first Boston gets four in the third the Yankees get four in the fourth to make it five to four. The Yankees are up six to four going into the seventh inning. And I remember by the time Jose Contreras came in the game and did what he did, I was back at home watching it. Starting pitcher for the Red Sox. This game is John Burkett, who had been in the majors. This is his last appearance in the major leagues. He'd been in baseball since 19. Well, he came up briefly in 1987, but he had been with the team since 19. He'd been with, in baseball since 1990. 
he had been a 22 game winner, led the league, led the majors in wins in 1993 with the San Francisco Giants. One of the the heartbreaking losses that was lamented by Mad Dog Russo. And he was sort of really struggling around. He was on those Ranger teams that um, he was on those Ranger teams that the Yankees beat in the World Series every year or sorry, in the in the division series every year in the late 90s. And then had been with Atlanta, had um, been an all-star with Atlanta in 2001, and then was finishing out his career with the Red Sox at 38 years of age. And this is his final appearance, um, it's, you know, final final pitching appearance in Major League Baseball. And I believe he is the, the is he the losing, he, he is not the losing pitcher of this game. Um, well, that's because they don't lose it. So, but he's not the winning pitcher either. So, yeah, this is another one of those back and forth games. Um Contreras pitches poorly. Contreras had actually pitched pretty well for the Yankees uh, once they moved mm-hmm. him to the bullpen, but he he doesn't pitch super well, well in this game. They have a horrible seventh. Garcia Parra hits a leadoff triple. He scores when Matsui makes a bad throw to third. So I guess it's like an inside the park home run, basically. Ramirez doubles. Contreras throws a wild pitch. Then Ortiz singles, ties the game. Then there's a single to Bill Miller. Contreras is relieved by Felix Heredia. He strikes out Trot Nixon, but also throws a wild pitch to put runners on second and third. They load the bases by walking Veritek. Then Heredia walks in Johnny Damon to make it seven to six. And then they Red Sox get a couple of insurance runs. But that was the horrible seventh inning the Yankees had, which put them behind. So a couple of wild pitches, an error. Two two takeaways you want to have from this game. First of all, the Red Sox blew a four nothing lead and still won the game. So if you're a Red Sox fan, maybe you're starting to think, hey, maybe things are different now. Maybe we're not cursed. And then from a Yankee point of view, the bullpen is not good. And that's going to really factor into what we see in game seven. Contreras hasn't been great. Jeff Nelson has been terrible. His ERA is over seven at this point. He's too busy fighting guys in the bullpen, maybe. Uh, Some of the other guys have been better. But going into game seven, it is Pedro against Clemens one more time. And you get one of the epic, epic games in, uh, in the history of this rivalry and in Major League history. It is also worth noting that Aaron Boone has been horrible for the Yankees at the end of this game. He's hitting 188. So he's hitting lower than that in um, going into this game. He's on the bench because of the fact that Enrique Wilson hits Pedro so well. So Enrique Wilson is starting at third base and it's Pedro it's Clemens. And uh, here we go. It's October the 16th, 2003. The Marlins had won the pennant the night before. This was the series was supposed to be over by now. So they're playing on a Thursday night. Or I guess I guess this was always supposed to be game seven. They just lost the off day. The World Series will start on Saturday night in either. And I watched a lot of this game last night, too. The Marlins are sitting in a hotel room in Chicago. They don't know whether they're flying to New York or to Boston, but they're flying somewhere the next day to get ready for game one of the World Series. And the reason they know that, well, they would have known it anyway, but 
2003 was the first year that the all-star game determined home field in the Amer- in the world series 2002 was the game that ended early or ended in a tie i should say because everybody ran out of pitchers so this is the first year where the all-star game has come into play with this i'm gonna say something and it almost seems I can't help but think, because you mentioned Aaron Boone, I can't help but think of the quote. And in a lot of ways, this is a game that's as close in stature in the history of New York baseball to this game. But before game three of the 51 NL playoff between the Dodgers and the Giants, I forget what the announce, who, which announcer it is. There was there was something like 48 different calls of that game that, yeah. that still survive. Um, and almost every guy has the same voice with a few exceptions. But somebody says like, you know, Today's hero yet unknown, but the man and the hour are about to meet. Mm-hmm. And that man would famously be Bobby Thompson. That's kind of how I think about this game. So there's the famous clip. I remember almost everything about this game. It's a Thursday night. There's the famous clip of both Pedro and Clemens taking long toss in the outfield. And they're both standing in center field. One of them throwing towards right field. One of them throwing towards left field to warm up but they're basically right next to each other back to back because they're getting ready to warm up. Um, So in the first inning, Clemens uh, in the, in the second, rather in the second inning, Clemens lets a single up to Kevin Millar and then trot Nixon hits a two run home run. So it's two nothing in the third with one out. He gets Bill Miller to strike out. Jason Veritek doubles. Johnny Damon throw, has hits a ground ball, which Enrique Wilson throws away, which scores Veritek, makes it three to nothing. Pedro is dealing. Pedro's shutting the Yankees down. They're not really, you know, they're not really. It's not like they're getting men on and, and you know, grounding out with the bases loaded or anything like that. In the fourth inning, Kevin Millar hits a leadoff home run. Clemens walks Trot Nixon. And Bill Miller singles. So it's first and third. It's four to nothing with nobody out. The game is dangerously close to getting away from the Yankees. And Torrey pulls Roger Clemens. He walks off the mound, and I watched this last night, and gets an ovation because the Yankee fans think he's done. I mean, he's come up very small in Game 7 of the American League Championship Series here, but they still eh, might be the last game. He's one of the greatest players of all time. He's won a couple of championships with us. Won a couple of, won a Cy Young we're still going to give him the hand. And his steroid nonsense hasn't started yet either. Nobody knows about that. So you think he's going to be, the, be he's going to be a first ballot hall of famer in five years too. Everybody thinks. Tory brings in Mike, you've seen out of the bullpen and let's be honest, this usually doesn't work that well. Bringing these starters in like this. It's a desperate move that you make when you're desperate, unless you're Randy Johnson against the Yankees. This doesn't usually work that well. And it especially doesn't work when you bring them in in a reliever situation. So in other words, you bring them in with the with runners on in the middle of an inning. 
because they're just not used to that. Uh, but this gets to my point about the fact that the bullpen just he didn't trust the bullpen. So Musina, he faces two batters. He gets Varitek swinging, then Johnny Damon hits into a a Jeter. You know, I, and I remember this to this day. Jeter picks it up, tags second, throws it to first, and Joe Buck. And I, I can hear this in my head is like it was yesterday. Face. Joe Buck says. Mike Mussina may have just saved the season for the New York Yankees. And yep, that's that I was going to say the exact same thing because that was, I remembered that and I watched it last night and it still gives you a little bit of like, Hmm, he was right. So we settle in a little after that. Um, Jason Giambi, who is not hitting in this series had been dropped in the lineup in the series, the seventh he hits a home run to lead off the fifth. It's one that just gets out. Actually, two of them, he hits two that both just get out. Just gets out. So it makes it four to one, which is where we stay until the bottom of the seventh when Giambi again with two outs in the bottom of the seventh as Pedro was again. After the Giambi home run, he shuts down the Yankees in order in the third, in the fifth, shuts them down in order again in the sixth. And then gets the first two outs in the seventh. So since the Giambi home run, he's retired the next eight guys who come up. Giambi comes up in the seventh, hits a wall scraper home run, makes it four to two. Wilson and Garcia follow it up with singles. So there's starting to be some cracks in the facade a little bit. He's been dominant. He had before this, he let up one. You know, just got out home run. Now it's home run, single, single. Soriano comes up as technically the go-ahead run. The tying run is on base. Soriano, who's also having a terrible series, strikes out. The guy I'm watching, the guy I'm watching the game with remarks that he couldn't hit the ball with a surfboard. That being our father. Yes. Our father and uh the uh, uh, so, uh, somebody who's guessed in on the Hello Old Sports podcast a few times. Yeah, Soriano is terrible in this game. I think he strikes out four times. I think he strikes he strikes out four of his five plate appearances, and I'm pretty sure it's his first four at bats. So in the seventh, the Yankees had gone to Felix Heredia after Mussina gave them. He got out of the fourth, and then he pitched great. He pitched, you know, shut the Red Sox down in the fifth and the sixth. So he's done. They go to Heredia in the seventh. He works a one, two, three inning. So now they're going to go back to the starters again. So in well, comes. They had brought I'm Nelson. Sorry, they had brought Nelson in. And Nelson actually does a good job. He gets Garcia Parra swinging to end the seventh. And then he gets a ground okay. out from Manny to, in the first first bat of the eighth. Here's the interesting thing. And we don't have to spend too much time on this. If it were today, they wouldn't have been able to pull Nelson. Because he hadn't faced three batters, yeah. but instead they bring so, in, they bring in David Wells to face Ortiz. Now, I guess to a certain degree, they've already used their lefty specialist in Heredia, so they they probably don't have anybody else. But it shows you again he's still wow. gonna he's still gonna go to these start things. I mean, you could have brought Rivera in, I guess, but so and also Ortiz is not Ortiz yet. That's he's a very too. good player. Yeah. He's not or so Ortiz hits a home run. And I remember at the time the air coming out because I'm like, before that, okay, they were at four to two. They'd cut it from four to nothing. The Red Sox haven't scored since the fourth inning. The Yankees got something going in the seventh off Pedro. Pedro's gonna have to come out soon. 
if they can keep it at four, and you also have to remember, you have to put yourself in this mind frame. And I understand how much we got our comeuppance the next year. I understand that. There was still this feeling at the time, as there had been for decades at this point. No, no. The Yankees win. They're going to blow it. The, the Yankees beat the Red Sox. That's what we like. That's going to be how this ends. So at four to two, there was a little bit of that. I had crept back in that sort of like, well, who's going to be the guy who hits the crazy game winning home run that wins this game for the Yankees? You know what I mean? Well, and let's um, also let's also take ahead. it a step further. It wasn't just the Red Sox. And obviously they had lost in the division series the year before, and they'd lost to Ann or to Arizona in the 01 World Series. But that was kind of the that was the sort of the common theme with the Tory Yankees in general. Didn't matter how much mm. they were down. They could be down six nothing to Atlanta. They could be down in these two World Series games in 2001, and they haven't hit the ball basically in a month, but they're still one one win away from winning a world championship. You know, 88 wins in 2000. You know, this was a team that always dusted itself off. Now, in retrospect, you look back and you see that this was 2003 and this was becoming more the Giambi team, the guys like that, the guys who weren't winners. But at the time, you didn't think of it that way. So we go into the bottom of the eighth. Pedro's out there. He's north of 100 pitches at this point. Let me just let me just get, let me just get and this is actually this is interestingly enough this is actually from Joe Torre's book but this is this is, Joe Torre's book is a great wrote it with uh with Tom Verducci and it was a great great book it's it's told in the third person rather than in the first person which makes all the difference for a sports memoir or autobiography Martinez comes out he's slipping on his warm up jacket Grady Little the the Sox manager goes to him he says I need you for one more inning can you give me one more and Pedro had said, I thought I was coming out of the game. He says, as soon as you're coming out of the game, even if it think, as soon as you think you're coming out of the game, even if it's just for 30 seconds, your whole energy level changes. Pedro says, I don't know what to say. Do I come out after this inning? I, I don't want everybody to say I wanted to come out. Pedro says, I'll try. And Grady Little says, I'll start the bullpen. Help is on the way. But why don't you go out there to at least start Grady Little says to him, I may even send you out there just to warm up. So in other words, I might send you out to the mound and then just pull you. And then when Wells hits the home run, it's like, okay, we've got another insurance run. Ortiz. I'm sorry. When Ortiz hits the home run off of Wells, they're thinking, okay, we got another insurance run here. It's five to two. The only offense the Yankees have really shown is two home runs by Jason Giambi, which almost I remember watching the game. It almost felt like that was separate from the game. It was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, the Yankees are struggling. Pedro's dealing. The Yankees pitching is, you know, they're throwing all these guys out there. Oh, yeah, and a couple of times, J- Jason Giambi has hit a home run that, that doesn't feel like it's going to mean anything. But then you get this epic bottom of the eighth. So starts off, Nick Johnson comes up. He pops out. At this point, the Yankees' win percentage is 6%. Jeter comes up, Jeter doubles to right. It's one of those that actually, oh no, that, that's lit. So Jeter doubles to right. Up comes Bernie. They show the bullpen. They show Timlin and Embry warming up in the bullpen as Pedro's pitching to Bernie. 
And McCarver says you get the sense that one way or another, uh, this is something I forget who he says, you get the sense that one way or another, this will be Pedro's last batter that, that a reliever will be pitching to Matsui. So Bernie singles. And I should also add that Pedro says at this point that he feels like he's batter to batter at this point. So it's not just Mm -hmm. outsiders. It's Pedro thinking this too. But remember, they're surprised. So Bernie singles, Jeter scores because Jeter was at second. So now it's five to three. For all the work, remember, they thought Bernie was, they thought he, there was no way they were going to let him pitch to Matsui. Certainly not after he lets up another base hit. Matsui hits a, a hard ground rule double that sort of takes a hop right into the fans and a fan like hits it with his hand. So they actually probably got screwed out of a run there because Bernie probably would have scored there. Well, and the other thing we should mention, too, is that Jeter's a righty. Bernie's a switch hitter. Posada's a switch hitter. Matsui's a lefty. So if you're going to pull Pedro at any point, it's going to be so that he doesn't have to face a lefty, lefty, righty. So and it was that funny as the ball hopped into this stands and the fan hit it there was a reference to well, after that game we saw two nights ago any fan really needs to be leery of reaching out to touch a ball so little goes out to the mound does not pull pedro and this i swear to you was not hindsight this wasn't me as a 17 year old being a smart kid i was amazed that he didn't pull him you know once you've seen enough baseball games you know what to expect. And the fact that Pedro continued to pitch after what had happened so far in the eighth. And instead what happens is Posada comes up and think back to the Posada Pedro stuff from game three. And they weren't exactly best friends before that. Posada hits a double Bernie scores. Matsui scores. It's now a tie game at five. And the Yankees have the go-ahead run at second base with just one out. And they got Giambi coming up, who's already hit two home runs. Now, he hit him off Pedro. He didn't hit him off the lefty specialist, too. But the guy's got, you know, up until five minutes ago, he's been the Yankees' whole offense. So we'll do this kind of, well, we won't do quick. It's probably a interesting word to use. But so Giambi comes in against Embry. He flies out. So there's two outs. Um, in comes Ruben Sierra to pinch it for Enrique Wilson. They intentionally walk Ruben Sierra. Since Ruben Sierra is 171 years old, they bring in Aaron, they bring in Aaron Boone to pinch run for Ruben Sierra. Kareem Garcia comes up, he walks, so the bases are now loaded. And look who comes up with the bases loaded and two outs in the inning. Alfonso Soriano, who strikes out swinging. The Yankees play their ace in the hole at this point in comes Rivera in the ninth. You know, I actually have to defend Soriano here. He actually doesn't strike out here. He actually grounds out here. Oh, I'm sorry. Grounds out grounds out. I'm sorry. This is, this so ends com- up being, this is his last mm-hmm. at bat at the game. The Yankees have eight more batters in the whole rest of this game. So it, it never gets back or maybe seven, either way, seven or eight. It never gets back around to Soriano. I heard I've listened to an interview with Tori from 03 the, the day after this game. I listened to it a few days ago. He actually gave Soriano the take sign at the beginning of this at bat because he was like, this guy, if I don't give him the take sign to at least start the at bat, he's just going to swing at everything like he has been all night. So, yeah, Soriano, he finally makes contact. but He doesn't do anything with it. 
So I'm going to go through the next couple of innings a little quick. Rivera, this is for my money. It's the best pitching performance of Mariano Rivera's career. I agree. In the night, in the, in the ninth, he lets up one single, but other than that, he gets out of the inning. The Yankees go down in order in the bottom of the ninth. So now we're going to extra innings. Rivera back out in the 10th. He gets a strikeout and a ground out before Ortiz doubles with two outs. They bring in Gabe Kapler to pinch run. So now they've taken Ortiz out of the game. Rivera gets Kevin Millar to pop out. In comes Tim Wakefield for the 10th for the Yankee or for the Red Sox. Matsui, Posada, and Giambi go down in order. Rivera comes back out for the 11th. I believe this is the first time since 96 he's thrown three innings or gone into a third inning. You know, he would back in that era commonly get five and six out saves, especially in the postseason. But, you know, we're now into the third inning. So you get the sense going into the 11th for the Yankees that this is it for him, win, loser. Like, this is his last inning. There's no way he's going to go and good. And Tory confirms that later. He says there was no, he said the third inning was iffy. He was never going to go out there for a fourth inning. I think it was going to be Pettit. I think if they had to go back, out, it was going to be Pettit. Yeah. I mean, who do they have left? So, they got Pettit. They got Contreras and they got Weaver, the three that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Rivera would have been out. So it's a mm-hmm. real question going into the bottom of this. Um, the bottom of this inning, this 11th inning, things are going to be trending Red Sox especially because they got Wakefield out there and Wakefield is a knuckleball pitcher. He could pitch probably another four or five innings if he needs to. Boone is in the game. He's, um, he's been terrible all series. He's been really struggling. And so Tori tells him before he really hasn't been any good. He really hasn't been any good since they traded for him about, when did they trade for him? Like July? Sometime. It's not like he'd been on the team most of the year or anything. No, it was right before the deadline. And it was because they, they, they'd had Robin Ventura. They'd brought in Robin Ventura. And Ventura had an all-star season for them in 2002. And for some reason, they soured on Robin Ventura halfway through the 03 season. I don't recall what the specific reason is for this. And then all of a sudden, it's, you know, they, they're playing Boone. They got Enrique Wilson. And uh uh, Tori is telling them um, Tori beforehand says that Boone is just a mess. He couldn't keep his feet on the ground. He was too excited. He kept swinging at fastballs all the time. It didn't matter who was throwing it or where it was. Fortunately against Wakefield, he doesn't really have to worry about fastballs before he goes up to bat. Tori says to him, when you go up there, try and hit a single up the middle or to right field, but that doesn't mean you won't hit a home run to left. The um, and that is what happens. Uh, Wakefield on his first pitch, Boone swings, he connects with it, and it's a home run. And there's that well known picture of Boone with his arms in the air, spread out, and it goes over. And it's another epic win for the Tory Yankees, and it's another epic postseason loss for the Red Sox. And it's an epic look postseason loss, not just for the team, but against the Yankees. They, um, it's funny. We forgot to mention, or we just haven't mentioned calling this game along with, uh, Buck and McCarver is Brett Boone. That's right. That's right. They go to the booth in the 11th and show them, you know, they do like a, uh, right before the bottom of the 11th kind of show them talking about the game and, and, you know, talking about how it's enjoyable, but nerve wracking and everything. And then like they cut back 
just in time to see Aaron Boone hit the home run. And, you know, they smartly lay out on the call. We should also mention by the time Boone even gets to second base, Mariano Rivera has run out onto the field and is collapsed on the mound. Like you, you forget for a second, he wasn't on the mound because it's like he's collapsed on the mound. But in order to do that, he would have had to have run out to the mound because he's he wasn't pitching. Um they show Wakefield walk off the mound. And like you mentioned, a little weird doing this now because Tim Wakefield's just passed away like within the last few weeks. They cut to the shot in the dugout of the Red Sox. And I'm not going to lie. That's an inc- even now, 20 years later, and even knowing what happened the next year, when I watched this last night and they showed that shot, uh, I felt incredibly satisfied <laughs> that uh, that of, of some of the faces on there. But the Yankees win this game. It's the... You know, I don't like this phrase, and I think it's, you know, never really applied and and all that, but it's the final act of the curse of the Bambino. Really? Yeah, no, I mean, it it is a very different situation a year later, and in a lot of ways, this moment, I don't know. We were going so long tonight. I just want to make sort of three quick points about this moment. Number one, the fact that they don't win the World Series. Number two, what happens the following year, which is much more meaningful for the Red Sox than this one is for the Yankees. And then number three, and this maybe isn't entirely fair, but the managerial tenure of Aaron Boone has not been all sunshine and light. He's had some good years. But I think all of those reasons you don't necessarily and, and also the fact that it was a very different team the following year, especially in the pitching staff, Clemens, Wells, Pettit are all gone the following year. It's Kevin Brown and, you know, Gary Sheffield and, you know, A-Rod. It's a different team the following year. So I think for a lot of reasons, you don't necessarily look at this team the same way or this moment the same way, I guess you'd say. Yeah, it's hard to justify this. It's it's hard to. This moment was huge, and it became a you know Babe Bucky Buckner Boone thing. Although that's always been a little Bill Buckner. That didn't happen. It was the Mets. It wasn't the Yankees, but it is yeah. you know still a thing. And the Aaron F and Boone along with Bucky F and Dent. Um, for my money, and I understand that I come from a biased place. This is the much better series than the next year. The next year is a bigger moment. This is a much better series. By the by, the time Game 5 is in extra innings, it is apparent to everyone, or it should have been, and I can tell you it was to me, the Red Sox are going to win that series. The last two games are almost anticlimactic that the Red Sox are going to win that series. Game 7 certainly is. Um, and like you said, we've gone comically long again tonight, so we should probably move on a little bit. But um, the... This series had everything you could ask for back and forth, the favorite and the underdog, the, you know, the stuff in game three that then resurfaces in game seven, the drama of game seven where the Yankees are down, they come back, then it goes to extra innings and it's a stalemate. And finally the walk-off home run from the, on this scale, unknown player, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
but like you said, those three factors kind of diminish it in historical significance. And again, I'm loath to admit this, but from the other side, this just sort of every moment after this was a countdown to the basically this was the first chapter of the book on the 2004 Red Sox. Oh, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, if you're a Red Sox fan, this makes it better. The fact that this happened, mm. if if they had lost in four games or or if, you know, let's say the Yankee, you know, let's say they'd lost to Oakland. Let's say that let's say that, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers, but we uh, several hours ago, we were talking about a different series. If Miguel Tejada remembers to run and Oakland wins that LDS, then and the Red Sox and then everything else happens again the following year with the four three oh and everything. It's still one of the greatest moments in sports, but the fact that they had lost in such epic fashion the year before only makes it sweeter for this one. So let I me just like it almost let me just put a bow real quick on Yankee Red Sox. Joe Torrey says that he thinks the Red Sox were the better team in 2003. So take that for what it's mm. worth. Yeah, that's diplomatic of him to say. I I think they were about even. I think they were about even. Um, so, and if you watch the game seven last night, like I did, they put up a graphic, I think sometime in extra innings. And it's like 44 hours until game one of the world series. And so this game ends well after, you know, it ends after midnight. The Yankees celebrate into the wee hours. And I, that was Thursday night into Friday. And I'll never remember the newspaper. I'll never forget the newspaper on Saturday morning was pictures of the Yankees players showing up at Yankee Stadium on Friday for their pre-World Series workout, probably three or four in the afternoon. And every single one of them probably had not slept yet. Mm -hmm. Like, so the Yankees basically have to rush into game one. You remember what happened with their pitching. That was the one thing I thought the next day after sort of the ecstasy of this wore off. I was like, are they going to have to pitch Jeff Weaver? Now, it turns out they threw David Wells, who had pitched in relief, right? And again, I, talk, I talked about listening to an interview with Tori. <laughs> Two things struck me about the interview with Tori that he gave on the radio the next day. First of all, even as manager, you can tell he's not really focused on the World Series. He's talking about how this is the sweetest win he's ever had as a manager, you know, how much he loves his team. You can tell that even for him, the glow of this hasn't worn off, even though he's got to think about winning the World Series or playing the World Series rather in just, you know, a matter of mere hours almost. Second of all, he was really toying with, you know, uh, Weaver or even Contreras in the starting spot in this game one of the World Series he pitches Wells Wells actually pitches all things considered decently enough it's three to two it's a back and forth game the Yankees never lead it's tied at one and then it's three to two um, it ends up being three to two Wells lasts into the seventh, the Yankees, I guess you could say they threaten to tie it in the bottom of the eight. They get two runners on before uh, Uget Urbina gets, gets Posada swinging. And then they get two walks in the bottom of the ninth off of Urbina before shockingly Soriano strikes out. And then Nick Johnson flies out to center field. 
Marlins are kind of doing it, doing it the way they've been doing it. Um, you know, not spectacularly, but with really good pitching. This time it's from Brad Penny, who goes not a ton. He goes five and a third, uh, gives up seven hits, but only two runs. And then Willis goes two and a third, gives up two hits. Those guys, by the way, both have ERAs well over seven, but it does seem like the Marlins are getting the pitching when they need it to. So they go up one nothing, but then and this part I think maybe gets missed. The Yankees then win the next two games, both by scores of six to one. And the Yankees are close to going up three to one in this series. People make it seem, and I was guilty of this sometimes too, where it's like the Yankees were exhausted and the Marlins just pushed them over. They did that in game one to an extent. So yeah, game two back at Yankee Stadium, Sunday, October 19th. Yankees get three in the first. They get home runs from Matsui and Alfonso Soriano critically in this game. Pettit goes eight and two thirds. The Marlins actually don't score a run until the ninth inning. Soriano's home run was in the fourth. Yeah. So they win this game fairly easily. They tie the series at one. They finally get a day off, which if you don't really count the day between game seven and day one, Game one is a full day off. It's really their first day off in a week. And that was a rainout, and they were in Boston. So mm-hmm. they get a day off they desperately need. The series shifts to Florida. Like you mentioned, they win this game six to one. That doesn't really tell the full story because it's one to one as late as the seventh. The Yankees get a run in the eighth, um, two to one on a Matsui single which gives them a two to one lead. And then in the ninth, Aaron Boone hits a home run. Alfonso Soriano walks. Jeter gets hit by a pitch and then Bernie hits a home run. So they score four runs in the ninth inning. It was two to one. They go up, they end up going up six to one and winning the game, but kind of the opposite of the first game of game two, where the Yankees had a big lead and, you know, co- coasted. This game was close until very late in the game. Both guys pitch well, though. Musina pitches well in game three. Pettit pitches well in game two. And then you got Clemens going in game four. And then this is where sort of maybe the the lack of uh, the lack of character of this team maybe begins to reveal itself a little bit. Um, Game four, maybe not quite so bad, but it definitely happens in game five. But we should talk about this game four already because they go down, the Yankees go down early. It's three to nothing. Clemens gives up a home run to Miguel Cabrera and then a single to to Derek Lee. The Yankees battle back. They, um, They make it three to one. And then, and I remember this sort of as clear as day. It just for whatever reason, this is just something that's that's very, uh, very, uh, you know, remains very vivid in my mind. In the bottom of the ninth, with two outs and two runners on, Ruben Sierra pinch hits for Kareem Garcia, and off of Ugeth Urbina, Ruben Sierra <laughs> triples scores Williams and DeLucci. And I actually have to admit, I'm, maybe I had it to be up early or I'd been up early the morning before I was watching this game, laying in bed in my dorm. And I remember falling asleep after Sierra hits this triple and just thinking to myself, 
they're going to win this game and then they're going to be up three, one, they're going to go on to win the series. And then next, the next morning waking up and finding out that they had lost. And it's like, Oh geez, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't going quite so well. And the sort of Contreras comes in and pitches well for a couple of innings. Um, he pitches, uh, Pitches a one, two, three, bottom of the ninth. He gives up one base runner, uh, a bunt, or I'm sorry, a walk in the bottom of the tenth. And then they um they pinch hit for Contreras in the bottom of the eleventh. Yankees get a double and a walk to uh, and then a sacrifice bunt by Delucci in the top of the eleventh. So they got second and third. And then Boone Boone comes up after an intentional walk. And then th- this is the problem here. The last four batters for the Yankees in the top of the 11th are Delucci, Rivera, Boone, and John Flaherty. So they got a weak underside of that Yankee lineup. They need a pitcher. They got to go with Jeff Weaver and Weaver. He pitches a great 11th. Yankees don't do anything in the top of the 12th. And then he gives up um, uh, a solo home run in the bottom of the 12th to the Marlins version of Juan Gonzalez and it's two to two going, uh, going, staying in Florida for one more game. It's two to two Marlins Yankees. And, uh, you know, we've been going for a long time here and I know we want to wrap up. There's just a couple things I want to say about games five and six, but I'll turn it back over to you for a second. One thing I always remember about Jeff Weaver is when things went bad, he used to always bite his glove. And I remember him walking off the field and I was like, if I see him bite his glove, I'm going to kill him. And I think <laughs> he just walked off. So, um, yeah, I, that was really it. I mean, the Yankees, if they'd gone up three to one, they probably would have won the series. They were a lot closer to winning this series than people think. But yeah, the the points you wanted to make on game five and game six, you can go ahead all I really remember about game six is just how it felt like every at bat was just a weak ground out to either the second baseman, the pitcher or the shortstop, but go ahead, go ahead. So Penny is pitching for the Marlins in game five before the game, Jason Giambi calls Tori over and essentially says, I can't go. He can't DH cause it's in an NL park and he's worried about his ability on the turf uh, in Miami, the ability to field bunts and, and, you know, slow ground balls. So he basically tells Tori, I can't pit, I can't go. So Tori pulls him from the lineup. Tori says it was his decision, even though it wasn't and puts Nick Johnson in Nick Johnson actually has two hits in the game, but Giambi only gets in the game as a pinch hitter hits a home run. Giambi does in the top of the ninth to cut the lead to six, three Yankees actually do threaten in the ninth, but they end up losing this game by a score of six to four. The other thing that happens in this game is that after one inning, David Wells, who had just joked apparently a couple days before in an interview about how little attention he paid to conditioning has to come out of the game after a one, two, three inning he has to come out of the game with a bad back and he tells he, Wells had told Stottlemyre that he might not be able to pitch pitches a Mel Stottlemyre, the Yankees pitching coach pitches a one, two, three first inning 
and then tells Mel Stottlemyre that he can't go. And so they got to pull him. They got to bring in Contreras, who gives up four earned runs in three innings. And then they bring in a, a here's a guy who you haven't even talked about is Chris Hammond, who gives up another two runs. I don't know that Hammond had even pitched before for the Yankees in the whole postseason. They end up losing that game six to four. They go back to New York two nights later on a Saturday night. Josh Beckett, who would go on to be the MVP of this World Series and also later win a couple more World Series with the aforementioned Red Sox. He blanks the Yankees in this game. It's a two nothing game. Starter for the Yankees in this game is Pettit, who pitches decently enough, but gets out pitched. Yankees manage almost five hits off only five hits off of Josh Beckett. Only one, two of them are extra bases. That's a double for Bernie and a double for Jorge Posada. Beckett goes uh, the complete nine innings to win the game, win the World Series for the Marlins. It's really sort of a triumph for Bud Selig, who had been trying to institute revenue sharing for years. They're finally getting the beginning stages of revenue sharing in Major League Baseball. Sealing before the World Series, it said that the Marlins' presence here is a triumph of the revenue sharing regime that we've put in. Obviously, he feels even better about that now that they've won the World Series. And even though when you think about this World Series, you think about the Yankees, you think about the Cubs, you think about the Red Sox, you probably think about maybe you think about Bonds, maybe you think about Mad Dog Russo and his epic rant. You probably Pudge Rodriguez maybe is the one guy you think about from the Marlins. But this epic World Series with these moments, Bartman, Boone, all of these things, it ends with the Florida Marlins winning the World Series. Yeah, and they were they won their second World Series in six years. Um, you're right. It's the you almost don't even you almost even forget they're the other team in the Bartman game, let alone that they won the World Series that year. Yeah, that that almost seems like there wasn't another team in that game because it's a play entirely about the Cubs. The I don't mean a play like a play. I mean like a theatrical play. But yeah, I mean that's if you're a Marlins fan, you think of that from a very different perspective. And Game Four of that World Series is probably a huge moment for you, as is the eight run inning in game six of uh, the NLCS when you were about to be eliminated. And it's not all about Steve Bartman. It's about the guys who got the hits and things like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a very epic postseason. that the two and out the two league championship series are going to be a part of sort of baseball fabric almost on their own. You forget that they kind of like interplayed with each other. You know, they were going on in a lot of cases on the same day and in some cases at the same time. But you're right. In the end, it was the Marlins who who won it. <laughs> the Marlins who, uh, who, you know, sidestepped all that destiny and dynasty and stuff like that. Yeah, and how often do teams that replace their manager midseason win a World Series? It happens. Happens to the Yankees in 78. It, it does happen. And then up until last year with Dusty Baker, McKeon was the oldest manager ever to win a World Series. So that's that's impressive, too. Incidentally, just for late in the night here, just a random Internet rant. I just wanted to verify the McKeon-Baker thing. So I Googled 
oldest managers to win a World Series. And instead, I get the managers that are the oldest now that won the World Series. Not so like Joe Torre is number two because he's now 82 years of old. So that is a useless, useless website. Um, you screwed up. You screwed up your own gimmick there, by the way. What? Which is the first time I've ever acknowledged that I noticed this every time. I think you don't know that I noticed this. What? That you only ever say years of age as a Chris Russo thing and never say years old. <laughs> and I, I, I noticed that I've. I've noticed it for years that it's a running gag and I just, I pretend that I don't notice it. Um, but you just said years of old. Um, yeah, really? I do. I do do that. I do say years of age. And that is a, since we haven't talked about him enough, that is a, my sort of subtle tribute to mad dog Russo. Yes. Well, on the other hand, it's three o'clock in the morning, so <laughs> I can't blame you for screwing up your, uh, your thing that guy who sent us the email that he likes our show, but our episodes are too long. is going to have a lot to say about this. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, obviously we went way long here as I thought we would, but this is, this is a fun, a fun postseason with a lot of, I mean, you can pick out probably a game from the Marlins Giants series. You can pick out a game from the Red Sox A's series, couple games from Yankees, Red Sox, one game at least from Cubs Marlins, maybe two be game six and seven. Definitely. There's like seven or eight games from this world series that are like epic game. The 12 inning game in the world series that people don't think about with, with, you know, with Weaver that we're just talking mm-hmm. about. It's really, um, it's great moments. It's, it's historic teams. It's historic things, but it's also just some really, really great games. In two iconic games. So yeah. yeah. You know, definitely on the anniversary of the 20 year uh, or the occasion of the 20 year anniversary, it was a good time to uh, to look back on all of this. Absolutely. And we hope you enjoyed it Uh, until next time, uh, possibly with a shorter episode. I'm Dan Newman (laughs) and I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.